What's up, everybody? Welcome back. Yeah, to the 3 of 7 podcast. I'm glad you're joining me for today. Today is a full-length interview-style episode with a really cool dude and friend of mine named Mike Cabrero. Yeah, Mike has got an awesome story. Look, this dude, Mike, retired from Marine, from the Marine Corps after 20 years. He's got a bachelor's degree in aeronautics, a master's of science. Um, he was promoted to the rank of gunnery sergeant while serving in the Marine Corps. He's an aspiring ultra runner and uh, not an aspiring ultra runner. He is an ultra runner. He's done multiple races and Mike really goes deep with us today through all the aspects of his story and lessons learned throughout a life of service and commitment. This is awesome. We recorded this a while back. I've been waiting to share this with you guys. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, yeah, today's episode is brought to you by Wake Up Foods or Wake Up Waffles, okay? You guys have heard me maybe talk about Wake Up Waffles I was introduced to them during the Mid-State Mile, a last man standing ultra marathon. I was out there with my buddies Jesse and Mark, and they kept bringing me these waffles out, man. And I was eating them throughout the course of this 30-hour race, and they fueled me. They tasted so good, and they were easy on my stomach. And ever since then, yeah, I've been sold on wake-up waffles. I eat them pretty much every day. So if you're looking for like a good snack in the mornings or really any time throughout the day or something good, uh, you know, to fuel you at your next race, check out Wake Up Waffles. It's the, wor- the world's first plant-based, gluten-free, nut-free, soy-free waffles. Like I said, they're easy on your stomach. Uh, their website is www.wakeupfoods.com. Check them out on Instagram at wake.upfoods. Yeah, that's Wake Up Waffles. Go check them out. Thanks for sponsoring the 307 Podcast, guys. Our next sponsor is Natural Rapport. These are some of our favorites. They make uncomplicated pet essentials. All their products are gentle, safe, and effective. They are all made in the USA 100%. Uh, The product line consists of plant-based grooming products, single-ingredient treats, all natural chews, and a full line of no-bake soft chew supplements. These are for your animals, your dogs. Hopefully you have dogs. If you don't, you need to go get a dog because it really, uh, they bring a lot of value into life. We have dogs. This is what we treat them with. What we care for them with is Natural Rapport products. We've been using them now exclusively for about the last probably six months. It's an amazing company, amazing products. 100% 100% made in America. That means a lot to us. Check them out at their new website, nattyrap.com, N-A-T-T-Y-R-A-P.com, or on Instagram. Their Instagram page is awesome if you like dogs, at Natural Rapport on Instagram. Yeah, I'll attach. They gave us a pro code, too. I'll attach that in the show notes of this episode. So, Natural Rapport and Wake Up Waffles. I don't promote products on here that I don't use on a daily basis myself in my own life. I promise you they'll work. You'll love them. Check them out. Support the companies that support this podcast. Love you guys. 
That's enough housekeeping. Here's Mike Cabrero. Enjoy. What is up, brother? What's going on, brother? How are you? Oh, man, I'm doing outstanding, dude. Uh, fired up to have you on a 307 podcast. Welcome, man. Thanks, dude. Well, I tell you what, uh, after watching you uh, run races and have the conversations that you have with the people that you do, man, I, I feel I'm a little more excited than you, brother. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, God is good. He's uh, he's made the path uh, pretty easy for me, man. I just got to stay true to him and keep marching forward. And, you know, it's people like you that make the podcast so awesome. I definitely couldn't do it without, you know, guys like you and girls and, and, and women, too, that are willing to come on and share their story, dude. And, Man, you've been getting after it. I mean, I like I spent like uh I got engrossed in your Instagram account today and it was just yeah. so solid with um your posts were so solid and, and just seeing the journey that you were on with the uh sixty nine miler that you did and the live videos that you posted and man, you yeah. have been getting after it, brother. So I mean you're the perfect guest for the three of seven podcast. So thanks super well, excited. Time. <laughs> the timing was definitely uh, set up, you know, at a higher level. <laughs> oh, 100%, man, 100%. And I just want to, I mean, of course, we'll dig into your um, life and your lessons and, you know, the whole nine yards. But just for the listeners, I, I, this is Mike. Mike, how do you say your last name? I don't want to screw it up. Uh, that's all right. Um, Cabrero, so C-A-B-R-E-R-O. Sweet. Mike Cabrero. Mike is a Marine. Um. Yeah. There's no such thing as former Marines, right? That's right. Yep. Yep. Mike Marine is alive. Once Mike, a Marine, always a Marine. That's it, brother. Mike is a Marine. He did 20 years in the Marine Corps. He's now retired. He is a ultra runner, a father, a husband. And are you a pastor now, too, Mike? Uh, no. But I believe anybody that's representing the body of Christ is a pastor, right? Amen to that, brother. Amen to that. Yeah. And we'll dig into that here in just a little bit because I know I saw that as part of your uh, bio was you guys have, um, assisted in launching a, a, a new church plant there in, oh, California. Wow. Yeah. So the last time that I was stationed in Oceanside, California, which was, uh, about three years ago. So let's see, we got, we got there in 2000 at the last half of 2013. And then we finished up there in 2017. But during that time we had gotten plugged in with a church that was in the planting process uh, there in Oceanside, California. And uh, yeah, we, we put our hands up, made ourselves available, um, you know, to, to go and, and spread the good news in that area, which was, uh, you know, considerably unchurched. And uh, we just wanted to be a part of that movement. That's amazing, brother. I can't wait to get more in depth about that. And you're in Texas now, right? Uh, yes, sir. Just, uh, just north of Fort Worth. So I'm here in Roanoke, Texas. What is it with you Texas guys, man? Because we had we had so many dudes from Texas in the teams. I think I think Texas uh Texas natives make up like um probably twenty percent of the SEAL teams, man. I don't know yeah. what they're feeding you guys down there. And, <laughs> and and every one you every one of you end up going back to Texas. What's the deal, right. man? Um, I don't know, man. Maybe it's the star on the flag. Maybe it's the red, the white, the blue. Um, maybe it's just, you know, we're, I, I would definitely say that we're born and bred with, uh, a huge heart and uh, a huge amount of pride for, for where we come from and what we want to, you know, what we want to represent. And I just feel like that kind of naturally falls into, um, uh, you know, a life of service or a, a life of, of, you know, good work. 
Yeah, man, something's got to be going on down there. It's got, I, and I've never spent any time. <laughs> I, I've never spent any time in Texas. You know, I'm buddies with Marcus Luttrell. Uh, uh-huh. He's out there, and and uh, a bunch of my other uh, good friends from the teams are out there. And mm-hmm. I got to make a trip out there and just hang out with you guys and see what the buzz is all about because it's got to be something special, man. So <laughs> I love it. Well, man. Uh, that'd be awesome to have you in town. So uh, if you do, we're definitely going to go sweat together, man. Roger that, man. That sounds like a plan. And you know that kind of that kind of just leads me into where I kind of want to start the podcast off with. You know, in the beginning, you talked about you know you were born and raised there in Texas. And um, you talked a little bit about your childhood in, in your bio, but I want you to walk me through kind of what it was like growing up, uh, you know, what values were instilled in you, and what are some challenges that you faced, you know, through that portion, that beginning portion of your life, man? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I was born in uh, Houston, Texas, down in the south end of the state. And, um, you know, from there, I was the first born of three boys. Uh, it's my mom and dad. And... Um, you know, they were really young. My mom had me um, shortly after high school. She had tried to give college a, a you know, a try. And, um, you know, her and my dad got pregnant at that time. And he was just out of the Army. And um, so they just, you know, they just buckled up and uh, and hit the gas and, you know, tried to figure things out. And so, um, you know, basically I spent almost all of my life, yeah, from kindergarten through high school in a small town probably not so small anymore in Pearland, Texas, which is right on the south side of Houston. Um, you know, we, we just, that's where we were at. We didn't move. We didn't, you know, change schools or shift around, but it was, that was us. That's where we were at. Um, so for the listeners, um, you know, this is going to be a story of a normal person. This isn't, you know, someone who, uh, you know, how these outlying conditions that made me some extraordinary person. Uh, if you're listening and, and you're looking for your story, um, I hope that I'm able to help build that bridge. But anyway, getting back to it. So, uh, you know, my parents were, you know, trying to make their way. My dad, a plumber, a second generation plumber after his dad had been in the army and um, came back home and, and uh, you know, became a plumber. And he, my dad followed suit. And, um, you know, my mom was doing banking, I think, for most of the time that I was a, a young child. And then my brothers came along, my second brother. Uh, a couple of years after me, and then our youngest brother, uh, about eight years after me. So we got a house full of kids and a small little duplex in Pearland, Texas. And, you know, life was just happening. We were rocking and rolling. And I'd say, you know, about the typical time, I mean, I'm feeling it now because I've got, you know, four young kids of my own where the stress of, you know, having a big family and, and just trying to provide and the natural stresses of, you know, I've got things to do and, I'd also like things that I'd like to achieve and you get kind of torn in between those circumstances. And I imagine that's what my parents, you know, were feeling because, you know, they were just 20 or so, you know, whenever I came along and, and, you know, they just were living life as young parents and, uh, their stress is there. No one's really making a, you know, surmountable, you know, amount of income or anything like that, but we're just a little Texas family on, you know, down there in Houston and we're just trying to make our way. And, um, I would say as the responsibilities kind of stepped up and, you know, my middle brother and I are kind of coming up into middle school and junior high and we're kind of, you know, starting to develop and become young men, you know, we're bringing home problems because we're dealing with bullies. We're dealing with, you know, arguments and we're, you know, got all the little dramas with our, 
families and neighbors and so on and so forth. And kind of all that gets mixed into the family works. And, you know, that, that weighs on parents because they want the best for their kids and, you know, so on and so forth. And that kind of leads into, you know, a mixture of feelings with, you know, things going on, you know, in the home with the family, but also with my dad's work where, you know, he's, um, at that time, I would say he was probably with a company where maybe he wasn't with the best influences. So we kind of had that pouring into life. And obviously, you know, work always comes home, no matter what we feel like a work-life balance is supposed to be. But um, it was what it was. And then, um, and then there was a couple of other ingredients that were really important to this equation as it was developing. But, uh, you know, I'm not sure where all that stemmed from, but uh, my grandfather, my dad's dad, had handed down, um, you know, some physical abuse, um, quite a bit of it, and uh, substance abuse as well, um, which he ended up passing away when my dad was really young. So I couldn't imagine what all that did to his heart because I, I believe I was maybe like two years old, three years old when my grandfather passed away. So I never met him. Um, and, uh, but I do know that, you know, an impression was made and, uh, you know, that our family had an ingredient that maybe not all families had and, uh, wasn't necessarily a good one. Um, so I get into middle school and, you know, things are kind of rocking and rolling there and I'm just kind of being a kid. And I'd say when I got to sixth grade is kind of when things started to get really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause obviously that's a very impressionable time for a young man. I've got all my friends doing whatever they're doing. And, um, I started to kind of fall into the influence of fellowship. Yeah. And yep. people think that, Oh, well, he's not going to talk about, you know, the drugs or the alcohol yet or no. Um, I was being poisoned by kids just doing what they wanted to do, or at least that's what I saw. And I wanted to do it. And mm-hmm. I think that sometimes uh, being a follower can be good if, if, you know, the intentions are good and, and the resource is great. But if it's not, then you end up with the other thing. Um, and so my thing in sixth grade was uh, comic books. I wanted to collect comic books more than I wanted to collect A's, B's or a good attendance or, you know, uh, attention to my teacher. And and uh, something really interesting happened. And I, I find this interesting now that. I have the life experience that I have, but, um, I was failing pretty bad. And, uh, I even went to summer school. My parents sent me to summer school and it wasn't good enough. And they said, well, we can send you to another class of summer school to get the credit that you need, or you can repeat the grade. Now I'm saying that just like it happened. My parents gave me a failing sixth grader the option of what I wanted to do with my summer. Now, were they, were they still together at this point? Yes. Yeah, so, like, so yeah. And this, and this yeah. is where, you know, I believe that, you know, I think we're starting to lose touch with our responsibilities as parents. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, in, in that situation and, and, you know, there's to their credit, I mean, they, they didn't have the influences that I feel they needed to, to make a different kind of decision. And so I don't put any of that fault on them because they didn't have mentors. They weren't looking for guidance. And, yeah. you know, I think they were just doing the best they can. And, and honestly they had three young, I mean, we were crazy boys, man. We were wild at heart, you know? Yep. Um, so we were just kind of doing what we wanted to do. And, and I think they were still, they still had so much growing up to do. So, mm-hmm. you know, mom and dad, I love you so much. And, and I don't blame you for any of that because I know what that's like now. So, Um, anyways, so I repeated now I'm behind my peers in school and I move up and, um, 
through time, the, uh, you know, my bad grades continue. And so I start coming home to, uh, you know, more and more whoopings because my dad had, you know, continued to have high expectations for me. And I continued to uh, fail at those expectations. And uh, I would say that, you know, the ingredients of alcohol and abuse separately and together um, really started to come through. And uh, it got to a pretty rough point to where if I'm going to be an open book, I would go as far as we described the beast. So there was a time where I guess my dad was just kind of, he didn't know what to do. And, and we, the boys that he raised were of his blood and of his character and we were hardcore. I mean, mm-hmm. we, you know, we weren't much to look at as young little stick figures, but, but we had, you know, hearts of uh, bronze when it came to, you know, I'm going to, I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. Yep. So anyway, um, so we eventually moved up in the spankings and the, you know, hitting and the ear grabbing and pulling and, you know, hit squeezing the pressure points with big, thick plumber, you know, fingers to, um, one day we had an ax handle and, uh, through using it, chopping off the wood, you know, I don't even know what we're doing, burning wood in South Texas, we didn't get that cold, but um, I'll never forget that old wood axe handle, and uh, my dad actually, I don't remember if he was drinking or not, I imagine so, because that was typically, you know, when things like that happened, but mm-hmm. um, he named it, he named it the Beast, purposely, and um, and he kept it just around the corner inside the door of the closet under the stairs and he knew that that's where we put our stuff when we came home from school when we left um that we were going to see it all the time and it was a constant reminder of pain and if you don't do what you're supposed to do that pain's coming yep yep and um before i continue on with talking about these scenarios um i've done a ton of healing with my dad over the years after a lot of heartbreak and a lot of distrust and a lot of brokenness, mm-hmm. but um, he has come back to me and we have both asked for forgiveness from both ends of the spectrum. We've both given it and we've also extended a ton of grace. So before I go telling the entire world, you know, putting this in the history books, um, I love my dad dearly and uh, he's an amazing man and a great influence in his life. That's powerful, brother. And you don't want to talk about the grace of God, man, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Thank God that we serve a God that can allow us to forgive one another for the things that we've done to each other, even Absolutely. as even as you know I've experienced that in my own life and in my own marriage, where you know I've done things and my wife has done things and my dad has done things and 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 things that are that were are seemingly unforgivable. Um, yep. but, uh, by the grace of God, we've been able to forgive one another in a true sense. I mean, a true sense of forgiveness, uh, things that, that, you know, you should, you know, another person would say, how, how, how do you still have, how do you still, how can you still look at that person? And it's like, by the grace of God, you know what I mean? And we've been able to heal. Uh, I've experienced that healing in my own life, man, when it comes to forgiveness and when it comes to uh, especially forgiving the people that you love because you have to get to that point, man, because life's going to continue on. And, man, there's not, 
uh, it's so cliche, but you talk about family, man. There's really, uh, there's really nothing more important on earth than than those close family members, and you got to pray for the ability to forgive them in a real way, man. Just like yeah. Christ forgives us for every mistake that we've made along the journeys that we've had. And it's, man, you want to talk about the perfect example of unconditional love. So I can understand yeah. that. I appreciate the fact uh, that you sharing that right off the bat with how you and your father were able to come to that place and now, you know, have that relationship still after all the trauma that you guys went through uh, in the earlier years, man. So that's that's a powerful point in and of itself, brother. Thank you. Um, yeah, so... Um, you know, after the beatings kind of continued over time, um, you know, it was, it was mixed in with a lot of good, you know, memories and, and activities as we were growing up. My dad was the one that taught me how to tire fisherman's knot. My dad was the one that, you know, showed me how to use a tiny torpedo to get the topwater bass. You know, my dad was the one that taught me how to start a fire at a Cub Scout, you know, retreat. Um, my dad would, you know, um, like me now, um, uh, my dad, you know, made his best effort to, you know, whatever work was doing, if, if we boys had a, a field trip at school, he, he wanted to represent as a, uh, you know, as a, oh man, why can't I think of the word? Uh, you know, just as a, as a parent, you know, yeah, to go yeah. and help out with the kids and what they were going to show first. Sorry. There it yeah. is. But uh, anyway, so he was, he was involved. He, he wanted to be there, but you know, mm -hmm. the, the difference in, in, terms for each of you know these sides of him was the added alcohol you know ingredient um yeah. you know whenever he would get intoxicated and i want to say intoxicated because i don't want to you know i don't want to condemn anybody who just has a drink or you know you know uses tobacco or whatever the whatever your little vice is but yeah. i mean the, the you know the uh the moment something becomes you know so important that you can't breathe without it then uh you know, you've, you've got to step back and you have to evaluate. A hundred percent, man. And I, I agree with you. I agree with you on that point too, Mike, because look, man, I'll go down here and have a bite for dinner and I'll drink a good craft beer, dude. Like yep. I don't have an issue with that, you know, but, uh, you know, if you want to look at it from a biblical standpoint where, which is where I try to find all my truth, mm -hmm. uh, we, as children of God, we're called to be sober, right? The Bible specifically yep. says be sober it doesn't yep. say you can't drink a beer, have a glass of wine. It says you need right. to be sober. So there's a distinct, there is a distinction there, just like you Absolutely. said, between having a drink and being intoxicated. Which at that point, that's where the sin is involved, and yep. and that is where that situation usually leads to more sin that you would not even think of uh, co committing or would even think of if you were sober. And that's the reason the Bible calls us to be sober, man. You know. Absolutely. Yep. Um, so yeah, moving forward, um, you know, so things to continue to progress regardless of, you know, whatever abuse or whatever was happening, but, you know, things that, you know, a 12 and 11 and, you know, a five-year-old, you know, don't understand are happening in a marriage behind the scenes. So, you know, my dad's kind of, you know, slipping into, you know, making decisions where, you know, he's not sure if he wants to go to the church that we're currently going to. And we kind of church hopped a little bit, man. We went to, you know, was born and kind of raised into Baptist churches. And then we, because his boss, you know, went to a, a church of the Nazarene. So we went and tried that out. And, and I'll tell you honestly, man, I, I couldn't tell you the difference between the two other than like how some of them, 
you know, how some practices of faith, you know, look at certain holidays or occasions or things like that. But other than that, you know, they all, they all put themselves at the foot of Jesus. And, mm-hmm. you know, I really, I can look back and I can say, everybody loves Jesus, the same exact Jesus that I worship today. And so, you know, um, I mean, while they were just different experiences, I think that they definitely became, you know, uh, a part of the greater perspective that I have and, and the guy that I worship, because, you know, a lot of people are out there, you know, talking about how their church is better and how one church may not be, uh, you know, quite to their level. But I'll tell you right now, if if, you, if they're digging into the same scripture of God and, and, you know, the story of Jesus that you are, then that's the same Christian brother that you're going to see in heaven. So go ahead and get comfortable with difference. Yeah, that's a solid word, man. And, you know, church to me is about fellowship, man. It's about going to a place uh, that's really essentially what it is to me. It's about going to a safe place where you can be around um, people and share testimonies and encourage one another mm-hmm. and uh, and praise God, really. I mean, you know, I, I've never been one to go to church to learn. Uh, I, thankfully, I still have a pretty good brain, and I'm able to read and understand <laughs> Scripture, and I'm able to listen to what the Holy Spirit is speaking into my life and uh, be aware of uh, the missions that He's placed before me. But you're exactly right, man. Don't get too wrapped around the axle about the differences between or the the minor differences between you know uh, different denominations and you know i i am hesitant to even get on that topic because it's such a hot topic yeah, um, yeah all all that all that matters is exactly what you said the cross is all that matters and that's the crazy that's the thing about being a child of or a, a follower or a disciple of Jesus Christ i think it's starting to get lost now mm-hmm. um the jesus is the cornerstone yeah. and i talk to a lot of people that might think that they're okay as long as they believe in god mm-hmm. or a creator but it's like jesus is the cornerstone it, and being a follower of christ it is exclusive and that, like, you have yep. to, like you said, you have to get down at the feet of Jesus. Like, yep. that that specific God. Uh, and, you know, yeah. I think that's being lost a little bit, man. But he is the cornerstone, dude. And it is, and it, it, it is an exclusive relationship. Um, that's the only way to, to get that eternal life. Sorry, I didn't mean to go off on no, that tangent, no. man. No, man. It, no, and that's that's a that's a great point to make, and I and I'm going to help you in that direction. If uh, if anybody out there is comparing and contrasting their belief against someone else's um, so much that you believe that you're getting closer to God, then your God is too small. That's good. Your brother. God is way too small. That's good. You need to worship a God that you cannot reach, the one that you need Jesus for. Yep. Good stuff, brother. Um, yeah, so moving back on, um, you know, into fellowship and and really just got myself lost in the turmoil and, in you know, the abuse and the things that were going on in, in our household. And, um, you know, I, uh, I basically just continued that pattern straight into high school. My parents eventually split up. My dad had some, you know, rough influences around him as far as, you know, friends, people he was interacting with and, you know, just just, I wouldn't say bad people, you know, I mean, I guess they were 
well-intended people because they were family friends and this and that, but it was just kind of like dominoes falling, man. And uh, I can specifically remember whenever my dad sat us down as a family at, at the kitchen table and is telling us, you know, 12 and 11 year old and, you know, the five-year-old brother that I've got, you know, at the time and, you know, your mom and I are going to get a divorce and this and that. We're kind of having that talk. And I'm just like, I don't even understand that. And I'm, and I'm kind of losing that and getting furious because we've seen our friends in our neighborhood kind of all been going through this at the same kind of time. So all of our parents are at the same age. Right. Yeah. And he actually kind of threw that out there. He had the courage to say, you know, as we were in rebellion right there, he, uh, he said, well, what about your friends? Don't how many of your friends' parents are getting divorced right now? And he he kind of threw that out as an excuse. Now I say that that's a very immature thing to do, but he was a very immature person. I'm and I don't want to give him an excuse, but he was. And uh, you know, I, I'll I'll agree that I was a very immature person at that year in my marriage. You know, and uh, and I still have a ton of growing up I have to do, which is why I stretch myself thin with challenges to to find that you know, that continued growth and, and, um, and maturity by, you know, challenging myself. Yep. But, uh, anyway, so that led me into, they, they get their divorce, you know, finalized the summer before, um, I'm going into high school, which, you know, is probably the time that you want a father figure in your life. And, um, I went cold Turkey on my dad, uh, whenever they split up, um, he even, so much as you know tried to you know challenge me well with you know you have to show up to these court appointed you know visitations and things like that and I was just so furious I looked him in his eye and this was the first time I I believe I'd ever looked him in his eye and made a, a promise but uh, I looked him in the eye and I said um, you can put me in a cop car you can take me to your house but the minute you close your eyes I'm going to disappear and you won't be able to find me and uh, you know, it was kind of a time where you know my, I was just, I was so broken. Where, where was the anger coming from? Were you, were you angry at him because you felt like he quit on you guys or what, what was stemming? Nail on the head. Um, I felt like, I felt like I wasn't enough to be loved for him to stick around and figure it out. Um, yeah. but more importantly, you know, you know, he was hitting me, but he was hitting my mom too. And, uh, just, just the, yeah, I just, I just couldn't deal with the quitting. Mm-hmm. You know, I just couldn't understand, like, you know, we, our lives weren't easy. They weren't polished and they weren't, you know, the most beautiful thing, but they were ours and they were our gems. They were our treasures. Mm-hmm. And um, where, where was I to go? I didn't, I, no one gave me a choice. No one gave me a choice to walk away from, you know, my family and, and go do whatever I wanted to do. So I just didn't understand what excused him you know, from his love. Yeah. I could only imagine, man. I could. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, so just being rebellious, I mean, his rule in our, in, in our home as he was growing up, you know, and I think a lot of fathers throw this out, um, unintentionally, but they say, you know, you live under my house, you're going to abide by my rules. Well, the day he walked out of there, his rules walked up, walked out with him, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and I'll tell you me and especially my middle brother, just because we were at that impressionable age, um, man, that led 
that led to a bad place. Um, we both immediately started smoking cigarettes. I was uh, 13. My brother was 11. You know, he was right behind me, but we had the same group of peers, so we were falling to the same influences. Um, you know, we were drinking beer. We were, you know, stealing cigarettes from the store down the street. You know, we were doing whatever we wanted to do. And 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 I'll be honest, you know, a lot of people are probably asking themselves, well, where was your mom? Where was your accountability? This and that. My mom needed my dad. She married my dad to live the rest of her life with my dad. Mm -hmm. And when he broke that, he broke us all. You know, now, now I'll say that he was broken too because I don't believe that it was in his character to take vows with the intention of one day, you know, um, walking away the way he did. Oh, and by the way, um, the reason he, uh, the divorce went forward is uh he cheated on my mom he had an affair with the lady next door who he is now married to who we have also had the same reconciliation and judy is a sweetheart and i love her to death and uh we have grown so much since then and again grace and forgiveness and growth and love has been shared and extended and uh and i feel we are all better human beings um you know, for it. That's amazing, man. I mean, what a story of forgiveness, man. I mean, you do not hear, you do not hear stories like this very often, yep. dude. I mean, that's just unbelievable. And, you know, you talk about when you when your father did walk out and then, like you said, you no longer were living under his rule because he, mm -hmm. he was, even though he may have been abusive, you still viewed him as the head and the leader of your, your family unit. And those rules were gone. And man, you know, you can't, I, I cannot help but look at our society today and wonder if the root of so many of our problems is fatherless homes. I, I that's all that always crosses my mind because, yeah, I, I mean, I don't even know the st statistics on it. I bet it's astounding how many. Oh, yeah. Uh, fatherless children there are right now, and if you looked back through the last 10 years, how many fatherless children are now out adults, you know, that yeah. have never, I don't know, man, it reminds me of um, of this Bible verse, uh, and I'll read it to you right here. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and children to their fathers. And uh, I don't know exactly what God means by that. I'll, I'm going to go back and search that, that uh, really search out the context of that verse, but what a glorious day it's going to be when we see God turn the hearts of fathers to their children and turn the hearts of children to their fathers. You want to talk Absolutely. about an uh, unbelievable impact on the human race. I can't Absolutely. think of anything. I can't think of anything uh, yeah. other than maybe love your neighbor as you love yourself. Um, yes. You know, that's about that. Man, if you could if you could fix those two problems, we'd be living in a different world, brother. It's just something Man. to think about for fathers out there. Oh, my gosh, if you're at a and, – and Mike can probably tell you this in a way more impactful way than I can. But, man, if you're at a point in your marriage that is just, just hard. I've been there before with my wife. I remember, I, I remember calling my brother like it was yesterday and saying, man, I, can't for, I cannot do this anymore. Yeah. Like, uh, 
and him saying, Chad, you don't have a choice. Like, you don't have a choice. And, yeah. you know, again, go back to a principle to put principle of nature. The darkest, coldest part of every single night is right before the dawn breaks. It's a principle of nature. So it also transfers to your marriage. It transfers mm-hmm. to ultra running. It transfers to every aspect of your life. Man, if you can just hold on, if you when it's so dark that you just feel like you can't go another step, if you can just hold on for just a little bit longer, the dawn is coming. The dawn is going to break. Here's a here's something I want to remind dads, fathers, husbands, wives. Uh, no one's excused from this. If you trade vows with someone, if you make a promise with someone, if if you invest yourself in something, you're a volunteer. Now I had to remember that in 20 years of service as a United States Marine. And there were many, many days where I did not want to wear camouflage. There were many days. But it wasn't because I didn't love it. It was just because I didn't like it. And like and love are two different scales to weigh your circumstances. Mm. If you like something, it's as good as your personality. But when it comes to love, you're weighing your character. And if you don't know the difference between your personality, which is the face value of who you are when you're standing before someone, and your character, which is when you're going through some something with someone and you're at your end, then you need to get an education in life and your circumstances and your character. Yep. Solid word, brother. Solid word right there, man. I love it. You put it so, so clear and concise. Um, take that and run with it if you're listening to this podcast and you're in that place in your life. Thank you, Mike. That's amazing, yeah. brother. So uh, moving on into high school, you know, after the divorce has gone through, um, I get into high school and, and nothing's changed other than I'm with bigger kids with bigger problems and, you know, making, you know, more more bad decisions. Just basically I'm wearing what everyone else is wearing. I'm cutting my hair how everyone else is cutting their hair. I'm listening to music that, are, you know, I'm just, I'm just following. I'm just doing really good at following and trying to be liked and, you know, just trying to make sure that no one forgets who I am, even though I was never anything prominent, um, you know, in the high school body. So um, I wound up, you know, uh, no surprise, I, I failed ninth grade and I got held back, but I had to do enough uh, between my 11th and 12th grade year. Um, and you're hearing this right. You know, I had to, I had to catch up to, to graduate one year behind. Uh, so out of 500 kids graduating in 1999 from Pearland High School, I graduated number 426. How I even got that high, I don't know because I wasn't even trying. I just wasn't trying. I had to do extracurricular courses and do, you know, all the extra, you know, um, co-op classes or anything that would easily give me credits. And then I also had to, you know, my graduation requirements had to drop to the lowest required um, graduation standard. Basically, I, I lowered my standard. I lowered my standard to move forward in life, um, which I'm not proud of in the slightest. 
Um, so I graduated high school with a 1.663 GPA, and uh, that's a real number. And um, yeah, it's just it's embarrassing. I, I've I've shared that throughout my career as I've you know tried to you know teach lessons of of where I've been in my life because uh, as my service as a Marine, I've I've encountered many young uh, adults, and uh, I've just you know used that time to uh, share my experiences and share my growth. So after that. You know, at, towards the end of high school, I'm in my senior year. I'm in a shop class, and um, I'll never forget in the wood shop class, the staff sergeant comes in. He's uh, he's in his he's in his dress blues. He's looking sharp uh, as as a as a person, not not really much of a guy, like not a big stature or anything. Kind of had the little nerdy glasses on. Come to find out, at some point, he was an F-18 mechanic, so he was you know really good with his hands. He had a brain in his head, um, but nothing could have prepared me for the interaction that our class had. So we had about nine to 10 guys in that class, young men in that class. And, and we were all kind of just, you know, nonsense doing whatever we wanted to do. But when that recruiter walked in that classroom, I'd never known, I'd never known any of those guys to just close their mouths and give anyone attention and their respect. And it wasn't him as a human being. It was just him and his presence as a service member. Yep. You know, he walked in like he believed, like he represented his organization. He didn't have a lot of words to say, kind of, you know, gave us some of the tidbits on, you know, the, the perks and the benefits of, you know, joining the service in the Marine Corps. And he did a spiel and he walked out. And I'll never forget the reaction um, after that because he walked out of the room, door closes, and I look over to a friend. I'm pretty sure it's this guy named Ben who eventually joined the Navy, uh, which was funny. But uh, I looked over at Ben and I said, that's what I'm going to do with my life. Wow, man. Because I had not known. I had, I had zero, I had zero <laughs> inclination that those words were going to come out of my mouth. I just, I just said, that's what I'm going to do. And he looked at me and I'll never forget. He looked back at me and he smirked with disbelief because that's who I was. I was not a believable person mm -hmm. and there was no one else doing it. So why would he believe that I'm going to do it? Right. Yep. Yep. It, so and the Marine, the, the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps does a lot of stuff, right? But one of the things that they got down pat is discipline and uniform and that presence, man. I mean, when you Absolutely. see, when you see a Marine for the first time, especially in that dress uniform, yeah, you, it's it's gonna grab your attention real quick, yeah. man. And absolutely, you, you know, um, a lot of the things that we fought in the SEAL teams, talking about haircuts, talking about uniforms, and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. We fought that stuff tooth and nail, dude. Yeah. But man, when you see a Marine that's squared away uh, and they're in uniform, it's like uh, can't nobody top it. Not not in the U.S. military, man. Y'all yeah. got that figured out. I want to yeah. I want to go back to one thing. Uh, Mike, because before we transition into kind of the next part of your journey, man, uh, going back to your childhood, I just I just mm -hmm. got to ask you this question, dude. You talked about, um, you know, as you were as you were growing up as a young man, kind of how those punishments or how those speak uh, spankings, if you want to call it, how they just kind of progressively got worse and worse. And, um, you know, now you're a father, man, and you've got young men that, uh, young sons, and um, you're in that position. 
How do you feel about that? And that's a hot topic these days, has been for a long time, you know. How do you yeah. feel about, you know, spanking children? Do I mean, what's your take on that, brother? I'll leave it at that and let you go. I got to ask you, though, because I feel like you're going to have a sound perspective on it. Yeah, no, um, that, that's a fantastic question. And, and that's, you know, that's those are decisions that I've had to come through through a very, very long process. I'm, I'm really glad that you asked that. Um, I can tell that when my dad would hit us, um, it was just kind of what he understood. It was a behavior that he was just so familiar with that that's how things got done. Um, maybe in his, in his generation, and that's what we, that's what we fail to forget is that people are changing with generations. You're not raising yourself. You're raising someone else. Um, but anyways, so he was trying to raise me like his father raised him. Only problem is time has changed since then. Um, and I don't think that he should have been any easier in his expectations, but, um, I feel like, you know, he, he really failed in, um, raising his, his expectations, but not his level of awareness. And I feel like that's, that's the gap that a lot of people really find themselves in when they get lost in, you know, what they should be doing, what they shouldn't, shouldn't be doing. Um, one thing I'll never forget is the pain that lingers. And I don't mean the physical pain. I mean, you know, I made bad grades and you hit me. And I know that those two add up. But your beating didn't teach me a lesson. Mm -hmm. You didn't tell me where to go from there. No. You just said, don't do it again. And but that's what I'm doing. You're not showing me any different. And I, and I'll tell you that this is the re he didn't lead by example. Yeah. Yeah. That's what my, I was my dad. Say. Yeah. My dad dropped out of high school. Yeah. Um, and he joined the army, you know, and, and for him, I believe knowing his circumstances, I believe that was a good decision for him, you know, uh, because I'll be the first to tell you, as you'll learn later in my story, I do not like classrooms. I love to learn. I love to plan. I love to grow. I love to develop. It, I am passionate about not being the person I was yesterday. I'm in love with the idea that there is a different Mike at the finish line, clapping his hands, cheering me on. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, my dad, my dad didn't change who he was. He just changed his, he just changed his expectations. They just continue to grow. And, and I didn't grow with him because he didn't show me by any example of how to do that. Yep. Um, but he did show me how to work hard. And I'll tell you, as we move on to my Marine Corps journey, that came into play a lot. Yep. That, uh, that was a huge factor in you know someone who did understand how to guide and lead me by example. Uh, his work ethic was going to pay huge dividends uh, in my future. Mm -hmm. And so there was an investment made in that relationship. Yeah, I, I like that, and I've never thought about it that way, which I'm not – I am not a father, so I've never had to really work through these, um, I guess, these processes of raising children and, and correcting them properly mm -hmm. in my own life. I've never faced that challenge before, but, you know, I've never thought about it that way of how, you know, every generation, like you said – it's not, it's not that you as a, a parent should – the, the expectation of the child, the expectations you have for your child shouldn't be lowered, but 
your awareness of the 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 world that that child's growing up in. It's change. You you need to be aware of what they're dealing with and how it's so much different than you know even me, man, growing up, yeah. like, I mean, it's, it's changed so much that the issues that they face have changed so much. The culture has changed so much. Um, and having awareness of those things. And, and, uh, I think that is really profound, man. And of course, leading by example, essentially yeah. that is one of the, the fundamentals of leadership. 100%. I, yeah. Uh, it's so important. So I appreciate to get back that. to your, sorry to cut y'all, but to get back to your original question. So, so where I've grown from that in my experience. Um, so I was scared. I was very scared. Every single time one of my children was born, um, I was scared because God don't let me fail at this. God, let me get this right. You know, mm -hmm. God make let me make it hurt a little bit less. Um, because I know that I'm going to bring a lot of the behaviors you know, even, whether I practice them or not, those behaviors are in me. They're there. They're instilled. There was a part of my upbringing. So mm -hmm. it's in my DNA, right? Um, but I'll tell you, pain, like in your words, we, we don't give it a name, right? Yep. But, but we never allow it to stop teaching us where we want to go and where we don't. And uh, so that fear and that, and that pain of maybe getting it wrong motivated me and inspired me to go and find some answers. Maybe they weren't traditional, hey, here's a book or, you know, listening to a podcast or, or anything like that. But you know what? I went looking for men in my life that I felt had done a, a great job. And I went and asked them questions or I went and, you know, you know, searched the internet for inspiring stories of, you know, amazing people that had amazing fathers and, and father-son and father-daughter relationships. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's so many resources. There's so many people out there that did get it right. I mean, maybe they're not outnumbered by those who got it wrong, but they're there and they're available. One thing I remember specific, um, you know, about Tiger Woods and his relationship with his father, because, you know, I think everybody that, you know, knows of, of him and, and his father, that was a very, very special relationship, not only in the way that he developed his, uh, his uh, skills as an athlete, but uh, just the way that his competitiveness and his respect for his father kind of shined his light, you know, to the public eye. And uh, one thing he, he spoke about uh, whenever he was asked about, you know, his interactions with his father is even when his father disciplined him, he always got down on one knee and looked him in the eye and he came down to his level. Mm -hmm. And what's funny about that is that, while it doesn't seem like it seems like the baby thing to do, like you would do that with a toddler. Hey, you know, you know, stop acting up. Um, think about yourself in whatever leadership capacity you're in right now. And how many awesome, how many times was it earth shattering when either you as a leader or a leader that you were under came down to your level and shared that space with you? looked eye to eye and said, we can do better. Yeah. Or, Hey, let's get, let's, let's do this together. I can't tell you how many times I've been on a treadmill next to a young person who was just fired up about making a difference in their life and how they really sought out change because they knew they weren't doing it alone. Yeah. 
Yep. And and I so, think I think too that you, you're talking about that simple principle and that's an actionable mm-hmm. takeaway for any fathers or mothers listening to this podcast. I mean, that's really, really something you can implement right now. And I think it it takes it from it takes it almost from a level of potentially being potentially being a bully almost i mean as yeah. a, a as the leader of your family because there are plenty of fathers and mothers out there that are bullies uh and, and taking it from that to to really being more of a mentor and uh like you said more of a real true leader and and leading by example just that simple act of of getting down in that in that moment that you have to implement that discipline getting down on that uh, young person's level uh, mm-hmm. I can only imagine how that would change the perspective and change the I guess lesson that you're trying to get across to them man I love them I'm so glad you shared that with us man yeah um, you know I, I can I can remember so many friendships you know in my past and interactions I've had with you know just just important things happening in people's lives and there's never been a time where um, I was having an important discussion, a really heart to heart on helping someone through change or challenge or, you know, um, some kind of pressure in their life. And I wasn't looking them in the eye. Mm-hmm. Why would I treat my children any different? Mm. Solid brother. So if you're a parent, you have to make yourself available. Um, you're here. You made the decision. That child is here. And, um, you have to come to the realization that if you don't see the problem with your child, then you might be the problem with your child. Mm. And that's, that's hard because just as much as we stand in our own way, sometimes we do that with our family. Yep. Yep. Solid word, brother. I love it. That, that really, really clarified that question. And, uh, the, my, my, my perspective is uh, much better than it was, 10 minutes ago. So I love it, brother. <laughs> and I, I, I want, I want you now to carry on, man, through, um, you know, walk us through, I, I know, dude, you spent 20 years in the Marine Corps. You know, I know you've got a million stories. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I want, you're going to, you're going to have to guide this ship. <laughs> yeah, man. I, I just want you to kind of, uh, to kind of walk us through first, uh, you know, when you when you first got there, when you first got to basic training or boot camp, whatever you call it, uh, that had to have been a big shift from you coming from that, I guess, you know, no structure, no leadership, no direction, all of a sudden, boom, you're in the midst of this brotherhood that has all of those ingredients that you weren't used to, and maybe you were yearning for them, and uh, how that kind of affected you, man, and what was your experience with that? Yeah. Well, let me first off tell you a little bit more personal reason why I joined the Marine Corps. So yeah, a lot man. of people think that, you know, a guy in a pretty suit walked in a classroom and all of a sudden my mind was changed. Um, you know, that seat was planted um, with some other circumstances in mind. And I don't mean to bad mouth another service. I mean, we all have our, our interactions that are, you know, uh, you know, funny between the, you know, inner service conflicts and whatnot that are fun. But um, my personal story, and I don't think anything bad on the army, but this is just the way that it happened in my family tree and the way that I made my decision. But, um, you know, I knew the story of my grandfather and his service and I was, I thought it was really cool that he served in the army, but I didn't know anything about his service or, or had any interactions with him. All I knew is that he served in the army. He came home, he became a plumber and, uh, you know, he, he was not such a great 
you know, uh, example. That's how it was and, back in that generation. No, man, it's yeah, changed so yeah. much. So yeah, absolutely. For sure. For sure. And I, I don't mean to speak, I don't even mean to speak about the organization because I had, I think it has more to do with his decisions, um, and substances than it does the organization. So, yep. you know, it, it, that is what it is. But anyway, so I felt that the pattern repeated itself with my dad and, and my experience there. And this is, you know, me trying to figure things out. This doesn't mean that I had the right answers for, for that time. It's just, this is how I came to my decision. Um, so I said, you know, I want something different. I've got to, if I want something different for my family, then I've got to go and do something that no one in my family has ever done before. So if I want a different result, I have to travel down a different path. Yep. And that's exactly what I decided to do. So um, I thought it was even funny because I was, you know, because I was behind in school, I was a 19 year old senior. So 19 um, year old seniors uh, don't have to ask their parents for permission to join the armed forces. Um, and I went out on a whim and I said, this is what I'm going to do. And my mom didn't really know that I was pursuing it that hard. My dad was kind of out of, out of my picture. He wasn't out of the picture. He tried to be there, but I just said no. So I went and joined, signed up, and uh, you just real quick, Mike. You yep, just yep, yep. Uh, you just answered one of my questions I was going to ask you uh, without knowing it, uh, because one thing I see in in family units, and one thing mm -hmm. that I see it, it's it's those it's almost like generational curses, whatever you mm -hmm. want to call them. It's those yeah. traits that you were talking about that are passed down generation to generation from a grandfather to a father to a son and it's like it's I, I, I it's interesting for me to look at those those situations and say how did this person break that how did they break that and you analyzed it as a young man and it's it's amazing to me that you that you had that foresight to think I want a different outcome for my life and my future family so what do I have to do to break this? I have to travel down a different path. And yeah. that's really, really cool to me, man, that that is what drove you to the Marine Corps is essentially that's what you were trying to do is to break that generational thing of being passed down and down and down and just keep going and keep going. And finally, somebody's got to break it. And you did that intentionally. That's really, really cool, man, because that was going to be one of my questions I asked but that yeah. right there sums it up 100%. It's choosing a different path, not trying to do the exact same thing over and over again and, and expecting a different result. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, and it was funny because, uh, you know, I didn't, you know, in, in 98, 99, like we, we didn't have, you know, I, we never had a computer in my home, so we didn't have, you know, Google, let's look up what the Marine Corps is. Like I didn't even have a full picture on what it was. I had no influences other than that recruiter man who, you know, uh, came into my life and, and just kind of presented a couple of things, but I didn't even know what I was getting into. Like a lot of guys show, you know, had shown up to recruit training and were like, Oh yeah, I know this. And I know these leadership principles and traits and I know how to stand and this and that. I was like, yep, I don't know any of those things, man. I'm just here because, you know, I heard that you guys were kicking rear end and, and you work really hard and, and I'm hoping that some of that rubs off on me. But so, I mean, I, I kind of went in just educated on the legend, you know, of, just what a Marine is. And mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, that's not what I'm used to. So I'm going to go do that. And, uh, after I signed up, you know, and I told my mom and half my friends in my neighborhood who, were, you know, not really great influences on me either. Um, no one believed me because they just saw a 160 pound, you know, six foot kid. Like, yep, you don't, you don't do important things. You, you don't make changes. You don't take on challenge. And did that drive funny. you? Did that drive you or did oh, it man, discourage I, dude, you? 
dude, it was funny because uh, I was still a smoker. I was still a young smoker at the time, but there was just a time when um, I had some conflicts with my friends in the neighborhood and I just had to separate myself from them. I was just like, I, I, you're not in the equation anymore. I'm shutting that down. It was the same behavior I did whenever I lost trust and kind of quit, you know, my dad and I shut him down, shut him out of the picture. And we didn't even start talking until a decade later almost. Yeah. Um, but it, I was just kind of in the place where, you know, I needed the noise to go away. So instead of, you know, dealing with it, I just shut it down and said next. And then something else would, you know, that didn't agree with my goal. I shut it down. I said next. And so that's where I found myself saying, you know what, I'm just going to run um, laps around this trailer park until I feel like I've done what I'm supposed to do and I'm just going to figure it out. And, um, eventually, you know, we got through high school and, and did that and I shipped off to boot camp. and I'll never forget my recruiter's, uh, words as he, um, dropped me off at MEPS that, uh, that morning, he said, you know, Hey man, just, uh, just, just keep your head low and you'll be okay. And I went in a met. I kind of looked at him funny. I got, I got in the maps. We did our thing, whatever, so on and so forth. I get to boot camp. I'm in San Diego, um, Marine Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego, um, where everyone on the West Coast, you know, all the males on the West Coast go for recruit training to become Marines. And um, I remember getting there, and we take the white buses from the from the airport. You know, you've probably seen them. You've been through there, yep. and. Uh, you know, they drop, they drop us off in the middle of the night at the depot. And then all of a sudden you got the, the big smoky bear drill instructors, you know, pulling us off the bus and just going crazy with all the rules and the regulations and all the welcome to this and that. And there, I mean, you can't even understand what they're saying, but it's just chaos. Right. And it was funny because, um, I'm used to yelling. Yelling wasn't new to me in my household. I'm, I'm used to people being, you know, in chaos and stressed out and, and so on and so forth. But as we were arriving there, you know, they put us on these yellow footprints, which are right at a 45 degree angle. They're facing a couple of articles of UCMJ. They're kind of telling you, hey, you got this new set of rules. You're in this lifestyle. You're within the confines and the responsibility of the Marine Corps. This is your left lateral limit. This is your right lateral limit. Just go where you're told to go. And this, you know, this is how you conduct yourself. And while all this is going on, of course, I'm hearing it it's still with me. And I've, you know, relived that story for generations of Marines. But the only thing I'm thinking of while I'm sitting on those yellow footprints is, can I do this? Am I going to be good at this? Is this going to provide me with an opportunity? Is this going to really give me a trade? And is this going to change, you know, the father or the husband or the friend or the son that I become? Um, is this going to do something meaningful with my life? Am I going to be able to have purpose as I walk through those doors and, and, you know, take on this challenge? Am I even going to make it? Am I going to survive? You know, I mean, I'd never done anything like that. I mean, I've been around tough people, but I wouldn't get paid to be it. So I was, you know, I was just, it was just so much unknown. And like I said, I hadn't opened anything other than a pamphlet that they sent in the mail, you know, on what the Marine Corps was. So I'm literally going into the unknown. And a lot of people say, well, you know, no, in 1999, pot smoking, you know, beer drinking, trailer park, Pearland, Texas, Mike did not know what it was really to be a United States Marine. Yeah. Um, yeah. Remember my GPA? Yeah, I wasn't looking for answers. I was just looking for change. Um, and I was lucky enough that, you know, I fell forward and uh, put myself, you know, I made myself available for change. And, and you know, God took it from there. Um, but once I get into boot camp, 
you know, everything's chaotic. You meet your drill instructors. We got all these crazy days and nights where they're kind of keeping us up to get our sleep deprivation going and kind of get us off of our, get us on our heels and, and really start instilling discipline. So you have boot camp that's, you know, split up into three days and the first or three phases, sorry. And the first phase is the breakdown phase. They're really just trying to create turmoil, trying to break the team apart, kind of, you know, kind of, you know, take your feet out from under you so that they can teach you what they want because mm -hmm. you pay attention when chaos is happening. And uh, what was insane to me is that while all this is going on and all this chaos and spits flying and, you know, barracks rooms are getting turned upside down and everybody's just trying to, I have this realization. I was like, everything that these gentlemen are saying to me is encouraging. There's not one bad thing that's coming out of their screaming mouths. Like veins are popping out of everywhere in their, you know, above the shoulders. But I haven't heard anyone say a bad thing to me. They said, straighten up, tighten up, get louder, get hard, get faster, do it again, repeat yourself, you know, get online. Like every, every, everything they tried to stress me out with was positive reinforcement. They stressed me out with positive reinforcement. Wow, so for like, you moms and dads out there that are thinking that, yes, the Marine Corps is brainwashing your child, absolutely. If you think about why you throw clothes in the washing machine, it's to rinse the dirt and get a better product. That's, the that's truth, what man. they're doing. Bad habits have got to go. If you're going to make a difference in the world, you have got to let something go. Why not the bad habits? Why not take them to a place where they can't have their cell phone? They can't have their friends whispering what their next step should be in their ear or how cool they need to be or what videos they need to post in order to be important people. Just let them go be themselves, minus their influences, and watch what they learn and watch how they grow. That's pretty cool how your lens flipped on that. <clears throat> you know, you, you're talking about you finally heard those words and you, you had that realization that um, there's not a single – bad thing coming out of their mouth they're actually just trying to push me to become a better human being and a stronger man and mm -hmm. uh and i think it's also pretty cool how you mentioned that that first phase is that breaking you down phase and yeah. dude i mean that's that's a principle straight out of the bible god works the same way he he really can't do nothing with us mm -hmm. <laughs> until we we get broken down uh and he doesn't break us down like you know life happens and we make bad decisions and when we try to live apart from him uh a lot of times we make very poor decisions and life breaks us down and when we get to the rock bottom that's when he can really work on us man it may, it may be not yeah. even rock bottom but you you've got to you got to be craving you you got to get to a point that you're craving for something more than than what you've had or what you're finding in life in that moment and that's a, I think that's another really cool principle of nature, and I think uh, the Marine Corps may have took that strategy straight out of the Bible, man. I I, I totally agree with you. Um, <laughs> I, I can say over my years, I've heard a lot of preachers who have been great friends, and and uh, I've I've heard a lot of preachers preach on one point: die to yourself. Yeah. Like yep. When you say pick up your cross, that means it's you know your 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 needs, your desires they fall to the back seat yep. and you let someone else drive and it's got to be somebody, you know, who can conquer death and, and who better. Right. Yep. Um, but yeah, you know, so as we go through the phases of boot camp and we're getting challenged, they have a thing called incentive training it, right? And this is where you see the videos of drill instructors 
exercising individual recruits or like little packs of recruits at a time. And they're just destroying them, right? They're just giving them a little three minutes of a, you know, 153, you know, heart rate. But uh, they're, they're basically just, you know, listen, pain retains, pain retains, but they're also at the same time making them memorize the things you're supposed to memorize, making them say the cadences are supposed to. They're actually teaching. They're actually, while they're punishing them, right, with these, you know, crazy exercises, they're, they're instilling the thing that they're supposed to be teaching them. How do you say, yes, sir? How do you communicate better? How do you, you know, how did, what did you get wrong? How did you, how were you supposed to get it right? And they do it through all these crazy techniques that they've, you know, developed over so many years. And, and I'll tell you, it's been an amazing process. I can still tell you how to go to the bathroom and boot camp and, and nobody on, you know, listening would know other than a Marine. And they just probably, you know, just hold the beer in the air and, and you know, laugh at it. But um, I, I want to ask you too, Mike, while we're on kind of the, the topic of Marine Corps training, mm-hmm. do you think, um, I mean, that was back in the nineties, man. I mean, that's, it's, it's been quite a while, a while, quite a while ago now. Yep. Society's changed quite a bit. Do you feel like, um, the standards have been compromised or the standards have changed throughout the years? Is that something that you've considered or something that's crossed your mind? Uh, because you know, that's something that I think about not all the time, but um, every now and then it crosses my mind that, you know, even the standards that buds, you know, not that buds isn't hard today, but, um, it's just like, you know, I, I wonder, I wonder what it's like today. Have you, have you seen that? Have you heard of that? And what's your take on that brother? Yeah. So halfway through my career, I spent three years as a, as a recruiter and uh, I got a chance to, uh, go down to the depot and, and yeah, I've always, I've always, when I was stationed you know, not in Texas. I spent half my career on the West Coast, so I was close to San Diego. Went down there a lot, and uh, but even halfway through my career and, and towards the end, I spent many trips down there. And I've had so many friends that are you know uh, Marine Corps drill instructors, and that have gone in and out of that duty. And I tell you what, they're still making Marines. It's still 13 weeks to become a Marine, and you still have to earn it. You don't get it until you walk off that parade deck on the last day. You don't get to you don't get to you know hold the title until your drill instructor gives you that Eagle Globe and anchor and he thanks you for becoming his brother or his sister or her sister, a United States Marine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still earned. You still go down to the depot. You still get worn out like everyone else. And you're going to get taught the same basic leadership principles and traits and characteristics as all of us did. The training is going to train is going to change. It's going to evolve. And, and to there are going to be those that say, Oh, it's easier. They're fighting a different war than you mm-hmm. fought. I don't want to be trained like a World War One or a World War II Marine because my war doesn't look like theirs. Yeah. So I hope that it changes because if our warriors don't change and our battles do, then our victories are going to change. Yep. And they haven't. The standard has been changed. Um, we've, you know, I know that the Marine Corps has implemented, um, you know, greater physical fitness and combat fitness standards with, you know, um, the introduction of the Marine Corps Martial Arts Program. We call it MAP. Um, but also we used to run, you know, we used to only run a physical fitness test. Now we run a combat fitness test where we're being tested on, um, you know, aerobic strength and uh, anaerobics, uh, you know, exercises. Everything has changed. Marksmanship has, you know, gone through the roof. I mean, you would know that from your time as a SEAL. I mean, when we got, you know, generations invested into, you know, the war on terror, I mean, you learn new things. And I'm thankful that, you know, the, the lessons learned throughout that conflict 
have been implemented into making our training better and, and you know, better equipping our, our troops to, to take, you know, get onto the battlefield. Yeah, that's a great perspective to have on it, man. And uh, I'll, I, you're exactly right, and I almost feel like uh, the the longer time, the the more time goes on, uh, the almost the more educated, uh, the smarter, uh, the more you know, technologically advanced candidates become, and SEAL candidates for that matter. So yep. then at that point, it's like, it's like you say, the training needs to adapt uh, to, to accommodate uh, almost the, the higher mental capacity, and you can actually build a, a more efficient machine if you can adapt that training, and it, maybe it necessarily doesn't involve beating the candidate into the dirt quite as hard as we did 10, 20, 15 years ago. Um, but you're you're producing a better product by adapting the training, uh, either to the the environment downrange, or to the uh, candidate that you're the, the average candidate that you're seeing come through the pipeline um, as that changes and shifts from generation to generation. So that's a great perspective on that, brother. I just had to hit you yeah. with that question. No, no, I appreciate it. I'm glad to share it. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. All right, talk to me. What did it feel like to graduate? Um, man, uh, I cried a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, first and foremost, so we had this one evening, it's, uh, called DI dinner night, something they don't really do anymore, but, um, we would, so our families that were visiting would get to go down to the end of the depot and there'd be some floodlights or whatever kind of over this field that, you know, this grassy area that led up to that. And we would get in our platoons and we would march singing cadence some of the best cadences our drill instructors would love to sing with us right and it was kind of a motivation like just putting our spirits straight up into our chest man all of our being was in our chest we were putting our feet down hard we were leaning back we were just sounding like you know we were singing these really cool you know traditional cadences and uh i'll never forget um we literally marched into the light where our families would see us for the first time since we'd become united states marines and um they had our, our platoon flags marked out so where we were going to go. Our family members could see where we were going to be. Um, I was marching up as a squad leader. Um, I remember it very vividly. Mm-hmm. I was no longer that kid. Um, I felt like my younger brothers saw me coming in the direction. I felt like they saw the brother that I was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, that's how much it still means over 20 years later. Yeah, that and that goes back to that leadership by example, man. Yeah. I mean, that's powerful, bro. Yeah. And um, and I'll tell you, uh, there were great conversations had that night. Uh, my granny, my mom's mom, who is, I blame my 
stubborn, hardcore character on her. She was just the go-getter of the family, and, and I got every bit of her from her. And I, I, If I travel off the beaten path, it's because there was a 72-year-old woman still mowing her own easement with a push mower. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, to, to see her and my mom and my brothers there, um, only the tears, you know, that I just shed mm-hmm. can really describe it because um, it was just the first time that I would answer that kid that was on the yellow footprints with all those unanswered questions. And uh, I've continued, I continued throughout my 20 years to teach lessons based on that same experience mm-hmm. and every experience since then. Uh, anytime I had an encounter with, you know, you know, if I was given the floor to talk, which is basically how I got on your podcast, right? Would anybody like to speak up? Does anybody have anything to say hey, on the podcast? Takes, I, takes courage, yeah. man. That says speaks volumes about who the, the type of man that you are, man. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, if anybody who knows me and knows me well, uh, I'm never going to give up an opportunity to, uh, to speak and, uh, and, and try and make an impact where I can in the world. But, um, yeah, so, and I, I still believe even beyond retirement that, you know, beca- having become a Marine and, and learned things that I did and interacted with the amazing people, um, and, and especially a lot of the challenging people that I did in that organization, uh, I'm still responsible uh, to the people that I taught those lessons and shared those experiences with to answer that kid's call to, to get those things done. Um, well, I'll tell you, you know, what, Mike, that story that you just told right there of kind of how, it, I mean, that you walked us through that feeling of, um, of being that, that person at graduation, marching in there as a squad leader, not only as a graduate, but as a squad leader and, and having that sense of, uh, leadership by example for the first time in your life. And, and I know that doesn't sum it all up. But, you know, it, it sounds like to me that that moment in and of itself uh, was is, is probably makes the whole 20 years of service worth it for that single yeah. for that single moment, man. Because, I mean, how many times uh, there's not a lot of people that uh, get to have that feeling on that level uh, as, as a as a man, as a leader. I had a, I had a guy call me the other day, brother, and he was talking to me about going to, you know, he wanted to be a SEAL and he had all these, you know, thousand questions about what's going to happen to my wife and what's going to happen this and what's my day going to be like and, you know, the thousand questions. And it just, your story sums it all up. It sums up essentially the advice that I left him with. I said, look, man, if this is on your heart, if you're considering this for real and you're not just wasting my time, go and just do it, man. Yep. It's it's you you can you commit six years of your life if that's all you want to do. It's only six years. You're only twenty. You're in your your, your early twenties. It's a six year commitment, and there's nowhere else that I know of. There's nothing else that you can do as a young man in life that's going to give you that feeling that you just described. Mike, uh, there's nowhere else that you can go that within six years is going to give you the amount of credibility that you're going to have when you come out. Um, there's nowhere else that's going to give you, teach you the amount of discipline, teamwork. You're, you're, dude, you're going to be light years ahead. In six years, you're going to get 60 years 
of lessons, yeah. you know, and yeah, it's like that story that you just did that, that moment and that feeling that, and that experience that you got to have there at graduation. I mean, that's worth, that's worth a lot, man. So, uh, yeah, that's the best advice I can give for, uh, for people that are searching this out in their own head. Is this the path they want to walk? walk? It's just like, just launch, man, just yeah. do it, man. So yep. that's awesome, brother. Make yourself available. Whatever that's your it. goal is, if you, you have to make yourself available. A hundred percent, brother. And I'll tell you, so that experience definitely, you know, obviously planted a very, you know, deep seed in me. Um, and that went on. So there was also something going on there where, you know, as a squad leader, um, I made, I don't remember, I got onto some recruit for something right before graduation time. And so, I had done, I don't remember what it was, but I didn't, I didn't earn the meritorious promotion that was supposed to come with that. And I remember we were down at the, uh, we were down in the butts by the, uh, for final firing uh, qualification. And I'll never forget my drill instructor said, Hey, the old man, senior drill instructor, um, you know, he's not gonna be able to give you that meritorious promotion because of, you know, what went down with you and recruit so-and-so. Um, but you still get, you know, the, the position to, to march on, on drill day or whatever for the promote or the ceremony. Yep. So I was like, all right, that's all right. And so they both looked at me. I'll never forget. See, uh, drill instructor, staff Sergeant Harrelson and drill instructors, uh, staff Sergeant Huckabee, you know, both right there. And I'm just sitting there, you know, just being intimidated, but you know, they said, so, so what's your plan? What are you going to do now? Like, what are you going to do? Like you didn't get your promotion. You yeah. know, what, you, what are you going to do? And I said, I just looked at him and I didn't even hesitate. I said, I'm going to go to Marine combat training. I'm going to get that promotion. And, uh, so the next phase after recruit training is, uh, you take a little bit of time off usually, you know, to get a little R and R with your family or whatever, and everybody gets to cheer on the Marine or whatever. And then you, if you're in a combat MOS, you go on to the school of infantry, um, for your, you know, primary school and education. And then if you're, uh, not in a direct combat MOS, you still go to the school of infantry, but you take a course on Marine combat training. So, so that everyone knows every single Marine is basically qualified as an infantryman. That doesn't mean that we're a grunt or an operator or that we can go do a lot of very special and very um, precise, excuse me, things in con in combat that they do. Um, but if someone shoots at us, we know how to shoot back at them. That's it. If, yeah. If, if 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 someone you know knows how you know to get a hold of us, we we know how to reach out and, and uh, you know, return the favor, so to speak. Yeah, and you got uh, a basic understanding of probably small unit tactics and, uh, you know, yep. enough to, like you said, to be able to be an effective fighting force. That's pretty Absolutely. cool that the entire Marine Corps as a, as a, as a whole unit has mm -hmm. that level of training, man, because that's definitely not the truth in the Navy. <laughs> definitely right, right. not true in the Navy, man. Yeah, I mean, or, or any other organization. I mean, yeah. our entire organization does marksmanship, like weeks and weeks of mark marksmanship and then we have to revisit those qualifications every single year every single marine goes to the range we go to the gas chamber we physical fitness tests combat fitness tests um you know practicing our, our skills and our traditions and customs and courtesies and, yep. and all those things we revisit our history every single year it's, it's ingrained in the culture it's, it's something that's alive but anyway so i get to combat training it's a lot of tough work it's a lot of mountains out there in camp pendleton uh and uh, definitely not something you know, I'm used to from the south side of uh, Houston for sure. Yep. Uh, but I get out there, I get camouflage on, carrying heavy packs and ammo and guns and all that. And not a lot of people want to do that, but I, I found my uh, I found my my calling just for that period of time, and it was just to be 
a good squad leader and, and fire team leader and do whatever I could with the time. So apparently my effort paid off because uh, my combat instructors awarded me with a uh, meritorious private first class promotion upon graduation there. And uh, that was just, you know, another beginning of, you know, just another domino. Hey, Mike's, mm-hmm. Mike's making calls and, uh, and, and Mike's getting what he wants. And um, I was just glad to be in an organization that was fostering that kind of uh, behavior in me and using uh, my grit and my work ethic uh, to help me get ahead. Yeah. That's awesome, brother. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, man, and dude, you've got, you've got so much time and service and like, there's so much that I want to ask you. I, I like, cause I, I'm looking at your bio right now and the next date I see is 2002. Yeah. And, um, you know, I know there had to been a lot happened between then, uh, between the story you just left off with and 2002, yeah. because what happened? Mm-hmm. September 11th, right? I mean, the, the, yep. it's a game changer, yep. dude. And, yep. you know, it's like, you know, feel free. If there's something there, feel free to share that and lead us up to that, uh, that, that thing, that story yeah. there in yep. 2002, brother. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, September 11th happened and I'm, I'm still the guy, you know, I, I learned my technical trade. I was an avionics uh, technician um, throughout my career, worked in aviation logistics operations, avionics, basically repairing electronic components and stuff on gadgets on airplanes uh, yep. for the for the general audience. Uh, that's what I did. So, you know, the crazy dumb kid that didn't want to sit in a classroom, um, you know, with a Marine Corps uh, instructor and a Navy instructor, um, he got really good at paying attention and doing his homework. So uh, made my way through a very technical MOS and uh, qualified as quality assurance inspector, all those crazy things. Um, September 11 happens and I'm still that guy um, of I'm working night crew when, you know, um, so I'm sleeping during the day whenever, you know, the um, towers being hit with the planes on that morning. And I never forget my mom calling me and then, you know, I tell her, oh, hold on, I got to figure out what's going on. I turn on the TV. I see what's going on. I still can't process it. Mm-hmm. And then I get a call from one of my good um, buddies and sergeants, um, Sergeant Mark Bisbee. Hope you listen to this dude. Love you, man. Um, but uh, he calls me. He says, hey, uh, so all of us sergeants and staff NCOs, um, senior leaders in our shop, basically come to an agreement. Um, you know, you're the guy we want holding a, holding a, a weapon and, and helping guard the base because uh, everything's being shut down. And I'm like, Oh, okay. This thing's real. So mm-hmm. he basically said, we know you're tired, but you need to get dressed. You need to go check in with the Sergeant major at headquarters. So I went and did that. We got our briefs and, uh, I was a member of the in- interior guard for my unit. And we basically had roving posts, um, basically four on eight off, uh, we're only allowed to go to the chow hall, to our post, and to our room, no exception. Mm-hmm. So if you need to buy chips, you're going to have to phone a friend or get the duty to go and do it for you, but you're exclusively assigned to these three areas, and you're on call all the time. So we were basically four on eight off for two weeks until you know the threat conditions kind of changed, and, and we got used to what security on a base was going to be like yeah. um, at that time. So anyways... So I'm still the guy. I'm still the guy that people go to whenever, you know, they they want, you know, something to happen, which I was, you know, I was very proud to to have those responsibilities placed in my hands. And I've done it several other things along the way since then. Uh, but one thing that I did start to revisit is I started to revisit, you know, the whole partying aspect of my life, you know, that I grew up with. And, and I kind of didn't really escape because I was a young man. I was a bachelor. I was out in the world. And 
and I'm living an exciting life, you know, in a place that I never dreamt I would be, San Diego. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Marine. So at this, at this point, yeah, I'm accomplishing things, but I, I've become a little more bulletproof, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that, that culture is, is probably not all that great for someone, you know, with that kind of history, but it can be if you're cognizant of, of the changes you're trying to make. And I, and I'll definitely say that, like I said, I'm just a normal guy. I fall to influence. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm no different than anyone else. I see something that's fun and want to have a good time and you let loose and you do those things. And I, and I did, I found myself, uh, in 2002, um, it was at the end of June, NBA playoffs were going on. I, I, I remember that specifically. And, uh, me and the boys were going to go out. We were going to go down to, uh, some bar down, um, by the beach in San Diego. And I wanted one of our friends, my buddy, Matt, I'm not going to use last names, but one of our buddies, Matt there in the barracks, I was like, Hey man, I want Matt to come with us. Let, let me go see if he's available to, to ride down there and go watch the games with us. And they're like, well, you know. Okay, go ahead. So I went and got him, and, and uh, I was like, asked him, and Matt's like, man, I ain't got any clothes. I still have to, I still got to wash everything. Dude, let me give you my one of my shirts, one of my jeans, throw on some sandals in San Diego. Let's go. So I get Matt in the car. We make it down to San Diego. We're, we're down by the beach. We're watching the games. And uh, as the games are kind of ending in the late afternoon, because we were there for lunch and into the evening, um, the bar kind of shuts down as a, so just a regular social environment kind of turns into a club at night. And uh, so it's kind of, it turns into a big college beach party scene. And um, as that's happening, we start getting drinks, drinks start getting heavier. They start getting more frequent. Eventually, you know, I'm, I don't know how many tequila shots into the evening, but me and uh, a couple of my buddies, we just start acting up and we're not fighting or, you know, being crazy. We're just, we're just being a nuisance to the general public there in the, in the, in the, uh, in the establishment. And so we get asked to leave. And, uh, I'm, so a lot of the story is told to me because at this point I'm really, I don't, I don't remember all of it. So yep. this was pieced together by things that happened afterwards, but, uh, revisiting the situation. But so we get asked to leave, we get escorted, you know, out to the, you know, sidewalk. And then we make our way back to the car. My buddy Patrick, um, was the one that drove us down there and he was going to take me and Matt back to the base. And, uh, Matt and I were both, we were both, uh, tarnished pretty good in alcohol. And, uh, I, I, I know I was kind of blacked out at that point. I don't know how he was. I imagine so. Cause we were buddies side by side, putting them down. And so Patrick drives, um, he was a designated driver that night. So he was able to, you know, get us back to base or, heading back to base. So we start heading back on highway 52, um, from the coast. And it's a road that kind of takes you all the way across San Diego if you want to, but it takes us back to NCAS Miramar. Well, it's in the middle of the night, probably two, three in the morning. And, uh, Matt and I start wrestling in the car for, I don't know what reason, maybe one of us wanted to ride shotgun. I mean, what does anyone have a reason for when you're drunk? Right. So, so, um, but we're both, um, very well in our prime as young men, we're both very strong and, and very, you know, we're, we're alpha males. So whatever we do, Patrick cannot, um, I remember him telling me he, he could not continue to drive with us acting the way we were. If so, we definitely weren't going to make it through, you know, the gate at the base, yep. uh, not without going to jail or, or getting in major trouble. So anyways, 
So he pulls over. He's like, you guys got to figure this out. Right. Cause he's just trying to drive, he's just trying to get us home safe. And, um, so he pulls over and Matt and I immediately get out and start to wrestle or whatever. And where Patrick pulls off is there's like a barrier. And then over that barrier of the highway, it's, I don't know the grade. I don't even know how to describe it. If you look, if any human being listening to this, look down the grade of that side of the highway, mm -hmm. you would back away from it. It was that steep. Yep. It wasn't straight down, but it wasn't far from it. I'd probably say like seven or 8% grade. Yep. Um, so anyway, we end up wrestling and we go over that side. We wrestle over it. And when we go, all I remember in my, you know, drunkenness is I remember the tumbling. Like I felt like I was inside of a big barrel and someone was just shaking it really, really hard. Mm -hmm. There was no significant pain or anything. It just felt like just chaos. Right. And, uh, I remember kind of when it stopped, I was getting, I, I, I was trying to get up, trying to figure myself out. And apparently Matt, when we came to the bottom of it with whatever light was available, Matt, I think was freaked out at this point. I was much bigger than him. Um, but, uh, I guess he was between me and trying to get back up to the car. I think, I guess he was threatened by that. And so apparently according to our, all of our stories, he punched me a couple of times to try to keep me down on the ground because he thought I was coming after him, which I totally understand that. Right. Yeah. The state that we were in, I mean, who knows what's going on. And, um, eventually I make myself back up to all fours and, and back up for a second. So before the Marine Corps, I was, un I was, under the impression that Matt was um, into kickboxing um, before he joined the Marine Corps. That now comes into play. Um, so I got up on all fours and with his bare feet, uh, Matt punts me right in the face, right, right at the top of the bridge of my nose. And uh, he opens up a, uh, what comes to be a quarter size gash at the top of the bridge of my nose. If you see my humongous nose right now, um, it's all put together with, you know, plastic pieces. Um, thankfully I was rushed to, back up and get this. So I see a flash of light. I fall back and then I immediately scramble. And I remember just trying to get away from whatever just tried to harm me. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I can kind of remember coming to a fence, kind of moving over it. What I would later find out is that that was a barbed wire fence that I had gotten to. And I threw myself over it and I basically shred uh, my torso and my legs all the way down tore all my clothes into, you know, fibers. Yeah. And, uh, and then I had eventually went and found some bushes, um, to hide in, which apparently was a big batch of poison oak come to find out. Bad and, night, uh, <laughs> yeah, so, smokes. yeah, so, yeah, so we're getting there and I can remember someone like screaming my name and what it was, it was Patrick had come down there after he had seen Matt go back up to the road covered in my blood and um, in the clothes that I had lent him that night. That's where that becomes important. Um, and uh, they freaked out. And so he was like, we got to go find him. We got to you know, do this and that. And they were calling my name. And in my mind at that time, I'm trying to hide from that voice. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, you know, he's not coming out. Like we're not going to find him. It's all pitch black. Nobody has a, a light or anything to find me in the darkness down there. And, um, so they get in the car, they go back and I don't know if they went to the duty or if they called the sergeant or who they called, but they went and let people know after they had ditched the clothes, you know, that, um, that Matt was wearing, cause I guess they didn't want to give 
whatever impression. But so eventually I somehow, while they're out doing that or whatever they're doing um, at the base, I had somehow, I don't know how I did this, but I had somehow made it back up to the street and a CHP officer, California Highway Patrol officer found me um, lying on the side of uh, Highway 52 and it, you know, radioed in an ambulance and had me sent in to thankfully probably one of the best, um, you know, surgeons I could have possibly gotten. I was at a, at a hospital in La Jolla, mm -hmm. California, which if you're, if you're going to get in trouble <laughs> physically, do it in La Jolla. Yeah. Um, but I, I recommend strongly against getting in this kind of trouble. Um, so anyways, uh, I spent um, two to three days in intensive care unit um, with, you know, things helping me breathe because uh, basically what had happened is my entire orbital region on both my eyes was um, completely fractured. Wow. Um, so the human nose is only supposed to be about seven pieces of cartilage. Mine's forever in 26 pieces. Wow. Um, I had both my eyes and my face was so swelled up that friends that came and visit me in the hospital um, either broke down in tears or had to leave the room before they vomited. Mm. Um, my eyes were completely black. Um, the white of my eyes was completely full of blood. Um, but thankfully, none of my cornea or no permanent damage was done there. Um, my sinuses um, in my forehead were crushed and full, basically swollen closed and full of blood. Um, I'd be bleeding out of my sinuses for probably the next 90 days as they were healing. Um, they had to put stents in there. Um, then there was also the poison oak that got into all my open wounds as I was laying in the grass down there. Um, and then whenever they, I came to out of um, that ordeal in the hospital there, um, come to find out I'm, a, I'm allergic to codeine. So the stuff they tried to pump me with to uh, take my pain away made my body turn purple yeah, and break no, out in hives, which, which only added to the poison oak that was uh, already flowing through my body hey mike um, adjust your mic up just a little bit brother oh, sorry about that no yep. worries. gotcha but uh so yeah if things couldn't get any worse um you know then after that whole stint my mom and my middle brother come out to uh visit me in the hospital and i basically just crumble in the sorrow of my decision making um after they eventually leave and you know, everybody kind of leaves me on my own thing. I'm put on convalescent leave, mm -hmm. um, which is basically, a, for those that don't know, it's kind of a medical leave where the military will give you basically time to yourself so you can heal. So if you have a broken arm, you know, or something, they'll give you time away from work and they do it medically with convalescent leave so that work can't interfere and you actually get the time you heal. So it's a great system um, for those of us in the service. And I uh, just want to make sure I clarify what that is. But in my time and day, cell phones didn't talk to you and they didn't have Google searches. Um, and I, you know, so I had some DVDs in my barracks room for 30 days of convalescent leave where I basically just got bored with movies and I'd stare at my broken face in, in a mirror for about 30 days. So it was a pretty good uh, prison sentence if, if you want to call it that, because um, I had nothing but time to reflect on, on my decisions and, and what led me to that. Um, but a very special thing occurred during that 30 days of convalescent leave. Um, I'll never forget. I was, I was coming towards the end of it. It was, uh, he had been given some kind of restraining order or something Matt had, <laughs> excuse me, but, uh, he broke it and he went and grabbed the duty and the duty NCO escorted him up. I don't know why they did. They was instructed not to, but, 
they did. And I'll never forget Matt when that door opened. I looked at him. And I locked eyes with him. And we didn't say, he, he tried to, I, I, like the moment his, his lips moved, he tried to say, I'm sorry. And we walked toward each other and I just grabbed him. And I told him I forget. Mm-hmm. I didn't like, you know, over those 30 days, the only thing I realized about all of that pain, all of that suffering, all of that unnecessary chaos was that I put myself there. Mm-hmm. Ownership. Yeah. And I had given myself an opportunity, like you said, to own that before he had an opportunity, before he had the opportunity to own it. Yeah. Yep. And um, that was a really, really important step because that wasn't the thing with my dad where I had years to get away from it. I mean, this was my brother. I, I joined the Marine Corps to be with guys like this. I put my shirt and my pants on this guy to go out with us because he was a special friend and I wanted him to be out there living life with me. I put him in those clothes and I put him in that situation yep. and I put those drinks in our hands and I created that night. And a lot of people say, well, you're in the Marines and y'all were born in a bar and it's a drinking culture and this and that. Every single individual is responsible for their circumstances. Mm-hmm. And you have to own it. And, and I was thankful that I had that time alone. I had that time away from influences and people's opinions of what happened and their perspectives. And I got to just evaluate what I was doing and the results I was receiving. What investments was I making and what results was I receiving? And to find where I can correct the gaps in all of that was probably one of the most special things I've ever taken away because after that moment, of course, um, you know, I, uh, I stepped away from alcohol use for probably the better part of a decade. And, um, you know, I uh, got to go on a deployment, which is where I met my wife. But, you know, that was just an incredible experience where I made myself available to forgiveness and grace uh, based on the decisions that I, I understood that I made. And I was able to get back to answering that kid on the yellow footprints because I made the decisions to get away from it. Yep. But I, it, was up, it was my responsibility to get back to it as well. Did, did you, uh, ha- have you ever, uh, or, or during that time, did you see complacency at all playing into that situation leading up to that night and that whole scenario? Because I know, like you were talking about, you had achieved so much. You were that guy that everybody looked up to, depended on, and a lot of times success and a lot of times victory or whatever you want to call it. Uh, in my own life, I've seen it lead to complacency. Um, did you did you notice it, or, or have you ever attributed any of that to complac to being complacent as uh, as an achiever? You know what I mean, dude. I'm gonna I'm gonna blow your mind right now. The weekend before this incident, I was getting drunk at a party with my friends that I worked with, and we had purposefully gave someone our keys and had them hide them. That night at that party, I found those keys. I got in my 1990 300ZX, went on the side of a California road, put it in park on the shoulder. I was in a safe place, but I was under the influence. Mm-hmm. 
and I fell asleep with it in parking, my foot on the gas, and I blew the bottom out of my engine. Holy smokes, man. And wow. so when my, when my buddy that next weekend asked me to go out and watch the game with him, you know what my, you know what my answer was? Well, at least I can't drink and drive. Wow. That's how I got in that situation. Yep. yep. Dude, you knew it was coming. Complacency mm-hmm. is always, is always the ingredient mm-hmm. to our decision making. Yeah, yeah, and I feel like I feel like we're in the most danger of that complacency when we're performing at a high level. And uh, maybe a lot of people, maybe that doesn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people, but. Uh, I know most of the mistakes that I made throughout my career as a SEAL or in life in general, uh, whether it's uh, mistakes I've made in my marriage or, uh, you know, in, in my job or whatever it is, it, it was during those times that I was either running and gunning or, you know, business was good and I'm performing at a high level and everything's going great. And then that's when that mm-hmm. complacency sneaks up on you, man. I could see, especially the position that you held within your team, um, as, as being that guy that everybody looks up to, how that could have, uh, you know, played into definitely what you experienced with that uh, whole situation, man. Yep. That's no, awesome. absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. So, uh, man, what a, what, a, what a powerful story and a powerful time to uh, that 30 days that you spent in there healing. And uh, I love to hear how you utilize that instead of sitting in there and just pouting about the circumstance and you know uh you, you actually utilize that time to reflect and uh change the things that you were doing that were leading you down the path that you was that you were going i mean that again everything that you do everything that you've explained to us mike i think mm-hmm. it all ties into initiative man uh, uh, yep. you know a certain aspect of it is you've taken initiative throughout uh, every portion of your life of your adult life um, and you know, that, again, that initiative goes back to not only breaking those, uh, kind of generational bad habits that you were susceptible to, but that initiative has now led you to be the man that you are today and allowed you to, uh, serve your country for 20 years, man. I mean, that's a huge, huge accomplishment, but I just see that as a common thread throughout everything that you've talked about here today is you taking that initiative to utilize the time that you had um, to make the best of it and to uh, get get back get back going the direction that you want to go, man. That's so so yep. important, man. Initiative. It's that initiative is different than waiting for somebody to tell you what to do or waiting for somebody to tell you uh, what decision you should make or waiting to, for somebody to tell you what the best direction to go is. It's not mm-hmm. that doesn't take initiative. Initiative is you figuring it out and utilizing the time as best as you possibly can, man. I've seen that as a common thread. Yep. Yeah. So um, after that, I mean, it was it was time to you know. I just think it's funny when people say when life kicks you in the face because I always I was I'm in the back of the room just laughing inside my own head, and um, I tell you when when that happened. Um, during those 30 days, I found out what I was capable of, and I mean that in a very negative way. And I found out what I'm not capable of in a very real way. Yep. And none of what I had accomplished in making those friends or you know, making those decisions had anything to do with why I 
had become a Marine. And that was the one thing that I had circled around for those 30 days is, you know, here you are, you know, with no answers to any of your questions. Mm-hmm. Now, what are you going to do about it? Now, it's always, you know, it was always something that was very questionable, like a challenge when other people asked me, but it became very surreal when I've, I started asking myself that question. And so from there, um, after I healed up and kind of basically I had to prove to everyone around me that I'm not the guy that went into that hospital. I'm not the guy that trashed his car, you know, based on getting, uh, you know, getting, you know, intoxicated. Yep. And after this incident, uh, the Marine Corps put me into a program. They said, Hey, you're going to go be evaluated to see if you're, you know, uh, physically dependent on alcohol. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm glad that they did that because when I sat down with the counselor and we went through the evaluation, they did the blood draws and all that. And they wanted to, you know, um, ask me some questions to see if, you know, uh, any discussions or any talk about alcohol use or, or anything was affecting who I, how I was physically performing. And, and uh, at the end of it, you know, the counselor was like, listen, you're not dependent on this. I mean, the fact that you were only going hard on the weekends and then you had the discipline to not touch alcohol during the work week, you know, he's like, you're one of the very few that, you know, I've ever had this conversation with, but I am glad to tell you that, you know, you, you don't have a physical problem, but you do have a problem with wanting to impress people and wanting to, you know, achieve and, and you need to, you need to harness that. And so yep. I definitely took that counselor who was at the time a gunnery sergeant who was um, volunteering as a, as a substance abuse counselor uh, in his other time. So, yeah, so I took the gunny's advice and um, I stepped out of his office and into uh, my responsibilities a little different. So I went back to the shop. Um, I told my supervisor, I was like, hey, Matt can be around me. You guys don't have to keep us on different crews and do this weird thing that we create in the shop. And it was funny because when I came back into the shop, like, no one else in the shop had known that me and my supervisors had made this agreement. And so we came in and there's Matt and we'd already reconciled and, and, you know, done all that process. And everybody was like, you okay? You mean me get him out of here? I, <laughs> I was didn't like, know no, what man. was going to happen. I was like, they? no, yeah, yeah. They didn't know yeah. if I was going to like break down or again, you know, what was going to happen. And I still had a little bit of a broken face. Like I said, blood in my eye and, you know, keep, you know, stuff tough. Uh, stuffed in my nose and all that so they, they just didn't know yeah um but i was like no i've grown we're let's come on next thing let's do it i mean i'm broken but i'm not i'm not done mm. so um i got back to work i was you know um it, it was convincing enough that um while getting in trouble that you know with the, the original incident um had gotten me kicked off of a deployment um, i told him i was like listen what is it going to take for me to deploy and i want to go on an aircraft carrier that's that's why I joined the Marine Corps to get out of here and go and do something for my country. And, uh, especially at a time where it's, you know, uh, post nine 11. And, um, I, I, I did that. I was convincing enough. I changed my character and I, I learned the gear that I needed to work on. I took on the responsibilities and, mm-hmm. and, and proved that, you know, I'm, I'm heading into something different and, um, and it's going to have a good impact. And so they put me out on that boat and, uh, I basically use that time. I call it a long time, even though there's, 5,000 people, you know, stuffed in this uh, big aircraft carrier. Um, we were out at sea for nine and a half months from January to September of, uh, 2000, yeah, 2003. That's a long cruise, and, uh, man. It's a long cruise, a lot of port calls, but, uh, mm-hmm. but it was still a lot of time, you know, away from, 
away from influences and away from certain lifestyles. So um, I was able to get out there and establish myself. And um, first thing I did was, even though I wasn't taking college courses, uh, what a lot of people don't know is all of our services offer correspondence courses on all the trades and all the things that we utilize in our business practices. So um, we had these things called from the Marine Corps Institute. We just call them MCIs. They're basically a distance education courses. You can learn about anything from, uh, you know, working on uh, motor transportation units to logistics or warehouse keeping, you name it. I mean, if you want to learn something, there are these unbelievable amount of resources that with college credits that just educate you generally on the organization that you're in or in other trades, which is amazing. And not enough of the public knows about that stuff. But anyway, I get after this stuff and I know that those things are something that I can put on my record to build up you know, my education page showing the Marine Corps that, listen, I got this page 11 because I did get in trouble for being drunk and um, drunk and disorderly conduct for that because the investigation came to fall. I was at fault and I owned it. So we did that. And so what it did is it made me non-promotable for six months. And um, that was, you know, that was that they said, you know, we're not going to find you any money or, or take away your rank because it's, uh, it's pretty clear that, you know, your time and hooked up to machines in intensive care unit and, your sustained injuries is probably punishment enough, and uh, I'm pretty sure you don't want to do that again. So, well, they're right. I bet, and I bet that ownership, man. That and that's the thing, man. When you find yourself in these situations where you are standing in front of the man, and you're mm-hmm. in the judgment seat, oh. uh, how do you take the how do you take the ammunition away from your judge? You own you own the mistake. It's like yep. is that freaking simple, man? Because if you take complete ownership of your mistake. And you humble yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes complete. Uh, it takes com- all the power away from from the man that's judging you. So yep. I can only imagine uh, that's a big part of the reason why you were able to move forward the way you did, brother. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'll never forget during that time out on that boat, man. Um, you know, think I'm already you know 20, coming up on 23 years of age, and uh, I, I have to start making promises to myself. Okay, what's the next step going to look like? So. I tell myself, and I'm, I'm doing a lot of prayer at this time, a lot of prayer, because I'm just in my rack, or I'm at the chow hall, or I'm in the gym, and I said, you know, Lord, I don't know what's in store for me. I don't see a wife in my future. I don't see a family. I don't, I don't know what's coming, but I'm here, and I'm ready, and that was pretty much it. I was just digging into my Bible a little each night, and I remember uh, some of the sailors in my shop, because we worked hand-to-hand with them on fixing aircraft, and and they had a challenge. Hey, let's see if we can go long without smoking a cigarette, this and that. And I was like, hey, that sounds like, there you go. There's a little thing. And right, you know, I, so I planted that seed in my heart and I said, hey, you know what? My birthday's March 22nd. I'm going to stop smoking on March 18th, 2003. And uh, if I can forever not smoke, then I will have kept that birthday promise to myself. And I just started making promises to myself. And I had started achieving for myself, not for the glory of anyone else's you know, well done or attaboys or any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. It was time for me to just start, you know, collecting trophies and, and milestones for me to make me better, yep. you know, because that's what I needed in my life. I didn't need some, uh, an applause. I just needed to know that I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. And so uh, from March 18, 2003, I flicked, you know, sorry to talk about polluting the earth, but I, I flicked it out into the ocean and I haven't touched a cigarette since then. And uh, from that point, uh, it was funny because then I celebrated my 23rd birthday on March 22nd. And then March 27th, 2003, 
I get an email from this girl, Amy. And you know, one of the sailors in my shop, his sister was in a club out at Abilene Christian University uh, back in Texas. And some of her club sisters were at a meeting and she started saying, hey, this war's just kicking off officially while my brother's out at sea. And there's some guys we just want to, you know, we can get pen pals and, and uh, send them some uh, care packages and this and that. Well, well, I've now been married to that woman for, for 15 years. And uh, we wrote back and forth to each other with a non-physical relationship, just back and forth every single day that we could. Or if I was in port, I would shoot her a call, wake her up in the middle of the night and disturb her sleep and talk her ear off. And uh, so, you know, here we are. I'm just like on a hunch, just talking to this girl. You know, I had to travel halfway around the world to, to find a girl back in Texas. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so so that happens. And, and I find out that, you know, she's a preacher's kid and, and she's a fourth generation preacher's kid. And she's there to get a Bible degree. And, and I mean, this all this unbelievable stuff, man. And I'm just like, I don't even know where this is coming from. I couldn't make this stuff up. A lot of people, you know, we, we share our story, how we met. And I'm like, you know, you might want to start a tape recorder or something because it, I'm going to sound like a World War II movie, you know. But, <laughs> but but that's how it happened. That's just how it happened, you know. We didn't yeah. meet at the bar or the club. We didn't walk into each other at the grocery store. It's just, you know, I was at war, um, you know, and, and, I, and I answered an email. And um, I'll tell you what, like, it was just an amazing thing because, you know, she had been in relationships there at college and she had just kind of, she just happened to go to club that night and just happened to, you know, receive a page with our emails and, and we connected and we talked about real things. And, and the story I just shared with you, that was one thing that as, as our relationship was developing, I mean, just as pen pals, you know, I was like, man, this, she, she seems like a really good friend. And someone I, I could honestly trust based on, you know, the conversations we're having every day. And, and I thought it was really important to just throw myself out there, make myself available and say, listen, if you're going to be my friend, I want you to know the worst about me. Yeah. And, um, and, and, you know, because I saw that there was some promise as we were developing there. And, and uh, sure enough, you know, she was like, I, 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 she tells me, she was like, yeah, that, that, uh, that, that weighed heavy on how she saw me. Um, but she just, she just had the heart that's like, you know, there's something about this guy and what has led up to him being able to share that, that, you know, she trusts me and, and, uh, and she was very interested in just continuing to develop our relationship. And, um, it was funny because while we we're out there emailing each other, um, what she didn't know was that, um, I was coming up on the end of my first contract and I had, was talking to the career planner, someone who helps us develop our you know the next path for the next step in our career and i had the option of going out as a bachelor for embassy duty for my next enlistment or i found out that there was actually a spot at the naval air station joint reserve base in fort worth texas and i'm a young man who's very passionate about this girl who i'm emailing two hours away from you know this place that i could go and i yeah. said you know what I'm going to pursue this. I'm going to make myself available, even though I don't know if she's going to want to date or, you know, have a relationship or anything in that sense. And, and I said, you know what? It, nothing's going to happen if I don't do anything. Um, <laughs> so, so I, yeah. So I went and, uh, on my way driving from California to, uh, to Fort Worth, I stopped by and I stayed at a hotel nearby and she was doing finals or whatever. Um, during that semester and she came to the door and we said hi and it was 
weird and I'd sweat every pore of my body because I, I felt like we were doing boot camp all over again. <laughs> and, um, you know, we, we went out on a date and it was, it was cool. Like, you know, everything worked out. And what was so weird is I've never known someone before I've physically met them. Mm-hmm. And I'd known this girl for the better part of a year yeah, yeah. <laughs> before we even had a physical relationship, you know, and it was, it was so great that we got to invest in each other's hearts and minds um, before we get to do that. And, and just on a side note, I think that's something really special chat about what you're doing with your podcast, because I feel like I've already known you based on your interviews with you know guys like Rich Roll and, and uh, you know, things that you're doing out there with Jesse and, and all these other guys um, and just, you know, making, putting yourself out there, you know, making yourself available. That's, that's and, so key, man. And that's been a yeah. common thread throughout, you know, your episode here is making yourself available. And that is so yeah. key, dude. And it's, it's not, it doesn't mean, I, th- I think that w- one of the biggest things I see that stops people from making themselves available is they, they, they spend too much time looking at what other people are doing. Right. So, yeah. you know, you mentioned the podcast here. It's, you know, for me, you know, I, I didn't, I had no clue how to start a podcast and, you know, and then, you know, I could, you, you, you could, when, when you go to launch off on, on a mission or something like on an objective, like creating a podcast, if you, if you keep looking to your left and looking to your right and you see what the, the guys that have been doing this for a long time and already have a huge established, you know, platform and, you know, how many other seals out there have a dang podcast, a bunch, and they're all a lot bigger than mine. And I'm like, you know, that didn't, that never mattered to me. Uh, what mattered to me was making myself available. That's it. I didn't care what, I wasn't going to let what everyone else was doing stop me from doing that, man. Um, so, you know, don't, don't think that you have to have this massive platform or you have to have the ability to make this massive impact right off the bat. Don't let that discourage you from making yourself available, uh, because that's where it all starts. If, if you don't, if you don't make that decision to put yourself out there, like you said a minute ago, it's, uh, you know, what is the alternative? Uh, it's, you're going to be stagnant and crouching in fear of what everyone around you is doing and accomplishing, you know? Absolutely. So that's a powerful Absolutely. lesson, man. And that's been a, gosh, that's been a standard for you definitely throughout your life. And that's, everything starts with that decision, man. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to talk um, real quick, Mike, about, uh, I want to talk about, and, and I know there's so much more packed into your career, man. <laughs> I know there's got to be so I get much bored. there. Most like we get bored. It's, it's, <laughs> It's like I want to talk about that transition for you real quick into uh, from being, you know, a whatever you want to call it, a, a active Marine and, and deploying and, and doing your, your workups and your training and, you know, being there at the team to then trans, transitioning into that more of mentorship teacher position of uh of being a, a Marine Corps recruiter, which is a very prestigious position uh, to hold there within the Marine Corps because you guys, again, now you're the guy that's walking into the classroom having to have that presence <laughs> and having to have that, maintain that and, and preserve, uh, you know, the, and, and live up to almost that yeah. guy that you initially saw back in the 90s, man, that walked into your classroom. You know, that's a big transition, dude. Uh, but... 
I know for me, a big principle of my life is if you ever want to become the master at anything, you have to, you ha- there has to be a period that you are, you have to be willing to become the teacher or the yeah, mentor, absolutely. right? So how was yeah. that for you? And what, what's the big lesson that came from that transition for you, man, in your career? Well, first off, um, for those that don't know, um, for just a, for most Marines that are going to choose the Marine Corps as a you know, 20 plus year career, even if you go into a second enlistment, the Marine Corps is going to, you know, put up the fact that you have to, at some point in your career, you have to give back. So some guys will go and be like a, a, an instructor at their, their respective school for their trade. Um, the other is you have to go either be a drill instructor at boot camp, or you have to be a Marine Corps recruiter or an embassy guard, or um, you can go be a Marine combat instructor. There's lots of other paths that maybe I don't know about or maybe didn't mention, but those are the, you know, the most important ones. And uh, when you say, you know, it's a prestigious uh, position, it definitely depends on who you ask. Um, because if you get a room full of Marines who signed up to fight wars um, and, you know, get strong and, and win battles and shoot guns, if you ask them, hey, who wants to go pu- do public speaking for, uh, to high school kids for three years? you're going to find some cowards in the room. And, uh, and I say that respectively because there's, there's, there are some heroes that will shy away from, uh, from public speaking, but, um, it's the no, same, it was, same way in the SEAL teams, man. But when yeah. you, when you look at the reality of what, of the job that you're tasked with in that position as a recruiter, the reality of it is it is a very prestigious and a very important right. position to hold. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and it was funny because uh, as I was coming to the decision, um, a lot of people have that have served with me had already placed me as a drill instructor because of the way that I conducted myself and just the way that I went to work and the way that I held myself. And I was, you know, the guy we were talking about earlier with the great haircut, and very trained. Obviously, you know, I'm on my way to always doing big things physically and just, just taking it very, very personally, you know, my responsibilities as a leader and as a Marine. Um, so people would kind of, pigeonholed me into that and i'm sure yeah. like so what are you going to do and i was like well the marine corps says i need to go and be a recruiter and they're like oh are you going to do that and i'm like yes i'm absolutely going to go do it and uh what was great about the opportunity that i saw in my eyes was that because a lot of people were shying away from that responsibility they had a little bit more respect or fear for that um that responsibility i saw that as an opportunity for me to get an edge on everyone um, because if they were being, if they were being held back by their fear of the unknown in that capacity, and I wasn't, I'm already winning. Yeah. And um, what a lot of folks don't know is that when you go on these special duty assignments, because of how uh, much responsibility each of those roles uh, entails, like you don't have a sergeant major breathing over your neck, you don't have a you know, someone telling you every little move to do. I mean, you're out there planning your day, going to your schools, making your routines, setting your appointments, doing all these things. The Marine Corps recognizes those roles and, and offers um, opportunities for meritorious promotion if you ex- if you excel. Now, I didn't know if I was going to make the right, you know, relationships or right impression or do whatever I needed to do. But anyways, when it came down to it, I, I put myself out there for uh, recruiting duty. and. Uh, in order to get the location that you want to go to, you have to submit an application to the recruiting station that you would like to move your family to and, and, and work at. So obviously, because my wife's family at the time was um, living in the Fort Worth area, I said, hey, I want to go to Fort Worth. 
And so I submitted an application, gave them my bio, all this and that. And the sergeant major and the CO came for that period, that class, and they wanted to talk to all of us in person for where, if they brought us in, where they would put us at. And we wanted to be up in the city, up near family, right, in Fort Worth. And uh, so they get to everybody and they say where they're going to go and so on and so forth and with the other candidates and they send them out of the room. And then the CO and Sergeant Major hold me back and they say, hey, Staff Sergeant Cabrera, we're, uh, we're looking at your resume, you know, and, and the things that you submitted. You seem to be something very special with that we're looking for. You seem to be very independent, very disciplined, very, um, uh, very task oriented. And uh, you seem to be very headstrong about what you tend to accomplish and so i was like yes sir i'm absolutely i'm, I'm that guy like what uh you know what brings that up and i said well we have this station <laughs> and they had a station down in uh Killeen, texas that had gone through some issues you know with schools and recruiters from our station that had gotten in some trouble making some bad you know, basically just kind of tarnished the marine corps um, mm -hmm. for that part of texas and um so they had a place that they really needed someone with my energy and my tenacity. And so I basically, I looked the Sergeant Major in the eye and said, Sergeant Major, you just tell me what it is you need me to do, what needs to be accomplished. I'm going to make it happen. He, he went on to throw out, you know, some other underlying things saying, you know, well, I'm going to tell you right now, this career or this, this uh, duty is either going to make or break your career. And when he put the ultimatum out there, I already knew. I It wasn't a decision. I was just like, let's just move forward. Let's yep. just put me where I need to be so I can do what I need to do. And so we went out there and I rebranded. We were RSS Killeen. I shortened it up because I thought it looked pretty if we called it RSS Kill. And uh, and I preached to all those kids that, listen, if, if you have a grade that you can't make, then you're going to kill the weakness inside of you that says that you can't do that. And you're going to just go and do that. And I basically became the voice of the Marine Corps that I felt. I needed to represent. I needed to speak to the kid that I was mm -hmm. and the message that I needed to hear. And, and, and I wasn't going to walk into a classroom and let my clothes do the talking. Um, so when I went out there on that responsibility, I understood that at that time in 2010, that I spoke on behalf of 230,000 uh, Marines that were out there fighting the war and giving their all to the enemy. So um, when I walked into a classroom, I told the kids, this is not easy. And if you choose to do this, you're probably going to do it all by yourself. And a lot of people aren't going to be there to encourage you and tell you that you're doing a good job. And there's not going to be a YouTube video made about you doing this. And you know what? There's no soundtrack to showing up to work for me every day. <laughs> so if this is something you want to do, stop looking to your left and your right. And you can set an appointment. with. Me. If not, it's okay. I was afraid to do this too. And basically what I felt was necessary for high school kids was for someone like I needed to challenge them to step up and, and talk real to them. Cause I feel yeah. that there are not enough people in a high schooler's life talking to them like the adult they're about to be. I, I feel like we're, you know, like we've alluded to before, like we were talking about, you know, this generation, are we afraid of the next generation in training? Why, why should we think about their weaknesses when we can just invest in their strengths? If, if their weaknesses are irrelevant, then why do we give them that attention? Yeah. Why don't we just train them and educate them to the things that we want them to achieve? 
And it was amazing because, uh, like we said, you know, a lot of, a lot of fatherless kids out there. And you know what? I, I encountered a lot of young men and women who, you know, they, they tried to place me and their moms tried to place me as that father figure. I said, no, 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 no. Like I had to tell my mom one time, I'm not their father. I didn't take on that responsibility. It wasn't my action. Yep. But I will be big brother and I will help give you guidance and mentorship. But it's only good if you take it. Mm-hmm. And from there, we went to, listen, I'm not just going to tell you these things. I'm going to show you these things. And there were some kids that needed to lose weight. And we'd go to the gym on Fort Hood there in, in Fort Hood, Texas. And we'd get on the treadmills together. And I would tell them the things that I had to tell myself when I was a kid to go and get those things done. And they would lose the weight or they would achieve the pull-ups or we would get the push-ups or the crunches or whatever they needed to clear their mind and make themselves ready to be a Marine. And uh, it's always funny because, uh, you know, a lot of people say, you know, you, uh, you they, they become Marines and everybody tells um, drill instructor stories. Like if you ever ask a, a Marine, like, like I did, what are your drill instructor's names? They all, you know, they all can tell you, yep. you know, their drill instructor's names. And I would preach to my kids. I was like, I'm sending you to boot camp to tell recruiter stories because um, I'll tell you what. If you're going to feel disappointed when you get there, because you're going to be out of shape whenever I send you, and uh, and I did, you know, but but mentally, I mean, they came back different people, more uh, more mature people, and and I think that maybe I had a, a a good opportunity to reach those kids and achieve what we did out there, um, because I just started talking. I I, I trimmed the fat from the from before we lit the fire. I trimmed the fat, you know. Yep. Yep. Um, and what I'm and, hearing too, man, is is essentially why that 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 step into that teaching or mentorship role is so important because mm-hmm. you you then had the opportunity to take all of those lessons all the way back to your childhood, and yeah. you, you took all of those and you you had the opportunity at that point to uh, teach them or or. or or help implement them into the lives of your students. We're going to call them students. They were your your recruits at the time, but um, and then and then you see them work, and so you're you're not only practicing those all of those principles at that point in your own life, but you're sharing them with others, and you're watching them work in others' lives, which in turn um, establishes the the faith that you have in those tools tenfold uh pulls on the fire man yeah yeah if you would have kept it all to yourself all those lessons to yourself and you would have never put yourself in that position to become the mentor and teach uh you know you're exactly right man the the power of those tools in your own mind would have never been set in concrete like they are now as you share them with me on this podcast you know what i mean yeah absolutely yeah that's key yeah. man i love well, it well uh I, I would you know and I, I would love to, uh, you know, say that, you know, as I finished up recruiting duty, I did what I was supposed to. Um, we made our mission out there by component and category, by what basically what the Marine Corps assigned us to achieve for that period of time, my 36 months out there. And uh, before I left, um, I was promoted meritoriously to the rank of gunnery sergeant. And uh, that was a part of why I went out there, because I knew that that opportunity lied. But Again, I had to make myself available in a real, very real way um, to very real people who entrusted me with their their lives and their futures. Yeah. Um, in order to produce the results, I did. 
And before I say that, you know, it was 30, 36 months of glory and, and awards and things, I'll tell you, uh, the time out there came at a, at a very real cost um, with some of the experiences that we shared. So um, I also want to quickly get into, so, so I had a really good couple of friends out there that were on recruiting a little bit before me. One of my friends, Matt, a different Matt this time, um, had uh, been having some issues, got a diagnosis, and with that diagnosis comes some very powerful thoughts and feelings and emotions. And um, he was one of the people, when I was going through the process of my, as a candidate for meritorious promotion, he helped me take my professional photo for that board as it's evaluated. And this guy, if you knew him, Matt looked like a superhero in a Marine uniform. Like, I don't care who you are, or what capacity you're serving in any branch or anything. If you saw this guy in a uniform, you're like, that's the guy that's supposed to be on the poster. You could, you could erase the guy on the poster and put this guy there. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, he was a, like a amateur golden gloves champion. Like, I mean, total, like if you wanted to study anatomy, you just look at his body. Cause mm-hmm. that guy was sculpted. Right. And, um, he was just a superhuman being. He was a, he was a great Marine. And, uh, we had known each other since that first time I was stationed in Fort Worth, um, when I had moved there before. And so we'd gotten to know each other as sergeants and we kind of went our own ways for different duty stations and we came back to the same recruiting station. So I'd known this guy for like the better part of eight years off and on, right? We kept in touch. And um, after this diagnosis, uh, so he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And uh, typically when, from my research, I've learned that that diagnosis comes with a great deal of depression and and, uh, suicidal ideations. And so he was just going through a lot of things in life, and I don't need to get into that because that's no one's business, but it just took him to a very poisonous place, his mind and his spirit. And uh, he was going through some troubled times. And uh, even the time that I drove up to Fort Worth to take that picture with him, um, I, I could, he'd never really smoked. He'd always been a dipper, but he was smoking profusely when we were in our, having our time together. Um, and uh, I remember asked him, I was like, what's wrong? And he didn't get into the weeds of everything, but he was like, you know, he just kind of broke down. He was just just sad. I'd never seen him so sad. And I could just tell that he just, he was almost not in there. And uh, so we were at the base and we were, we drove off the base and, you know, done the picture and everything, had some lunch together and just kind of talked about nothing that's really then we got back to our headquarters and he was about to get out and I, and I just instinctively, I just grabbed him and I, I was like, Matt, come back in here for a minute. And he's drying his tears, you know, after we were kind of talking about things that were going on with his stuff. And I'll never forget. I said, dude, do you, do you mind if I just pray for you just real quick? You know, I mean, I don't know what you believe, but can I just pray for you just for a minute? You know, and he was like, sure. And I started praying. I said, you know, Lord, I don't know what's on Matt's heart. Um, I, I can't possibly know the details of everything that's going on in his mind. But whatever it is, let me be here for him so that you can be here for him. And if he needs something, and I knew he had a boxing back. I was like, Lord, help, you know, he's, he's, he's in a corner. He's getting attacked with body shots. He's getting attacked with head shots. If I can do anything to help him keep his gloves up any longer, please, God, let's do it. Mm-hmm. Let me be here for, for my friend. And uh, 
caught me off guard as I was about to say amen. He said, do you mind if I do it too? And we prayed together. And he took over the prayer and he went into that and he kind of shared, you know, some of the circumstances that were going on, but he wasn't telling me anymore. Yeah. He was talking to God and, uh, and I didn't know that that was possible in him. And, and this is the first time I'm stepping out spiritually like this, you know, that's right. Um, that's before right. it was emotionally with, you know, the other Matt, but this guy's, you know, I just, I, I'm, I'm seeing my friends slip away and it, it just hurts that deep that prayer was the only place to go. Yep. And, uh, so we did that. And, um, unfortunately, um, things continued on. And, uh, so I was promoted meritoriously to the rank of gunner sergeant, um, which is eight years ago, July 2nd, um, 2012. Um, Matt committed suicide, uh, the night before. Mm-hmm. And uh, I lost a really good friend um, in a really tough way. And uh, we went through the mourning process, and we had a chaplain come in. And Chaplain Bill Appleton, if you ever want to look for a man to have on this podcast, holy smokes. Um, He's retired since then, and he is an amazing, amazing, amazing man who is still on fire for serving service members. Just keep that note. Um, I do, brother. But uh, so he came in and just got us through the training and all the stuff that happens after, you know, someone in the unit, you know, commits such an act. And um, one of our team members in my recruiting team in my substation um, saw us go through the morning process. And he was already a quiet guy, Daniel, um, and was kind of separated from us, didn't really interact a whole lot. But he was just kind of there, just doing his job, just day to day. And nothing changed. We all got our training, got our checks in the box, right? We, we went on a day of life. And um, he was just about, Daniel was just about to um, transition, go to his last duty station where he would just retire and finish his 20 years. Um, but whatever circumstances were going on in life, and um, he had somehow followed an example. And just 31 days after Matt had committed suicide, now someone in my team who I'd spent two years next to recruiting um, committed the same same act, action. And uh, and I tell you, after been, being punched in the face by life, right, or kicked in the face by life, um, this was a different kind of blow because it was a one-two to the to the to the spirit. Yeah. And it felt like in my life, in a time that I'm supposed to be celebrating and joyful of my accomplishment. Um, the devil's not done swinging. And uh, to me, it felt like such a personal attack because it was a friend and then it was a friend that I worked mm-hmm. really closely with and it felt like it was like it was getting closer to my door. He was knocking. Out yeah, my man. And uh, I'll tell you real quickly, although I went to a very deep low, the first thing when we got the news that that had happened to Daniel, um, I grabbed my team and we were in a parking lot in a movie theater because we had our, our recruits out at a movie or whatever. But I immediately got my team. I was like, hey, let's go over here in the parking lot between these two vans. And I just led us in prayer. And I said, if you're curious, this is where we go from here. And we decided right then and there that it didn't matter what happened. This was real. And we're really here. And, um, and we're just, we're going to move forward. 
and we're going to be strong and we're going to be strong together. And so we went back through the process of training and going, you know, just going through all of this and that. But after all that was done, then I had to go through the process of, hey, I have to go and brief all of his recruits on what happened and why he may or may not have made the decision that he made. And we had to write letters and make phone calls to the kids that Daniel had sent to boot camp and say, this is why, this is the reality of why your recruiter's not going to be here when you get back. Um, but most importantly, I went home um, not knowing what to do with my emotions and my feelings. And I'll tell you, I've never been more proud to be married to the woman that I'm married to because she knew instinctively that I needed to be showered in prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, because although I wasn't thinking anything dangerous, I was thinking poisonously, you know, oh, like yeah. I, I wasn't, I wasn't like traveling down a rabbit hole of emotion where I was going to do what these guys were doing. But what I was, but what I was doing was poisoning my own spirit by saying, you know, why weren't these guys, you know, I'm a father. They were fathers. I'm a husband. They were husbands. I'm a Marine. They were Marine. I'm a leader. They were leader. And what I did is I started tying myself to them, what they did and allowing them to be the reference when that's exactly, you know, what hell wants you to do. A hundred percent. You hit and you hit the nail on the head, man, where you said you felt like it was getting closer to your door and mm-hmm. and that thing and and he was he was creeping in, dude. I mean, that's what mm-hmm. that's the way that's the way he works, right? That's the way Satan works. He's the master of lies. He's the master of deception and and yep. and creeping in through those through those channels that you're talking about right now. And you're exactly right, and it's amazing to hear that your wife knew that you needed to be covered. You needed yeah. to be covered, man, and and to to put a stop to that attack. And man, thank God that we have, thank God we have the resources to call upon to stop an attack like that. You know, Absolutely. from from creeping into our own families, man. That's a that's a powerful story. Gosh, it hits really hits me close to home i I mean to hear that man um i mean i i I just can't i cannot grasp suicide i just can't so and and, you know my my sea daddy in the seal teams Mm -hmm. he killed himself man uh we got back from a deployment and went rolled right into another workup we're in the middle of a workup and uh, he took his life, man. And this was the dude that trained me up, like in the ways of war, like mentored me. And and um, go the ahead. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, similarly, um, so when I was going through recruiting school, the senior enlisted leader of recruiting school for me committed suicide. Yeah, uh, it's just like what for me. I guess if anything, if anything, I had to be aware of when when it happened in my life. I didn't have a chance to, I guess, mourn or comprehend that because we were right in the middle and we we didn't stop. It's like it happened and and we never stopped, never missed a beat, yeah. dude. It it's it desensitized it des. I have been desensitized to to death. It's it's the, 
I don't know. I don't know how to fix it. I don't know if it needs to be fixed. I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just like I just can't. I, maybe it's just because I could I could never grasp it. So I just you know it, I lost a close family member not long back. Didn't shed a tear, man. It's just like yeah. it's weird, man. I yeah. can't grasp it. Isn't it that that story you told? I don't know, man. It's a powerful story, and I mean. The takeaways are solid, though. You, you've brought it. You've brought it full circle, in that last part that you just told right there, and you brought it full circle right there, man. I haven't been able to do that personally, yeah. and I'm I'm glad to hear your perspective and how you've brought that all the way back around, mm-hmm. and uh, and 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 brought it to a point that you can share with people at least something valuable um, out of the the circumstance, you know. And I'll tell you, you know, just as important as I think it is to share on a platform like this, um, I'm, I'm pleased to have, you know, to have other stories where I've had young Marines after all these experiences, you know, that have had issues and gotten in trouble with alcohol or were dealing with, you know, um, with emotions that I felt were going in a direction that I was familiar with and that they weren't. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, I was able to provide these stories, unfortunately, but fortunately, um, to really help heal some things before they really spiraled out of control. And uh, again, um, making myself available, you know, not to toot my own horn, but uh, one thing that was taught to me by many mentors and, and you know, better men and women than me um, was that the, uh, at least in the military, from my understanding, is that. Uh, you, you can always spot a strong leader uh, when the people he was responsible for bring them, bring him their problems. And I'll tell you, I've, uh, I've had a lot of one-on-ones with some young people that have come to me because they felt like there was no confidence anywhere else. And that doesn't speak to the entire organization. That may just speak to a particular set of individuals, but, um, I tell you, it meant a lot to me when I got to be the person that they could bring to, uh, that they could trust. And in in other circumstances, people would bring me um, certain situations just because they I had they already knew that I was I had shared that perspective on life, or I've shared an experience, or made my you know talked about my pains, talked about my weaknesses, talked about my failures mm-hmm. and where I got it wrong and, and what I learned from it and what I did with it. And, um, it's, it's been awesome to, you know, through that time, I can remember Fred, this guy was a sergeant under me and, uh, is now a retired staff sergeant, but I'll never forget when he came to me talking about, I don't know if I want to reenlist and here's what's going on with my wife. And we're not sure if we can make it. And we're talking, you know, like they're we're using the, I call it the D word, but they're talking about divorce and, and uh, in my marriage, it's, it's just the D word, you know? Um, and, and it's that reason because, you know, my wife and I established, you know, laws, <laughs> not rules to be broken, but laws that will not be broken mm-hmm. um, at the very beginning of this thing. And, uh, and I shared that. And if there's one thing people will ever understand when they're around me for long enough. I am madly, insanely in love with the woman that I put that I traded jewelry with. I mean, we are one. We are one. Our marriage is forever. It is 
uh, I got, I, I have a, a screensaver on my, uh, it's a picture on my cell phone. I, I look at it every single day. It's two skeletons holding hands and says, uh, till death do us part is for quitters. And, yep. um, yep. you know, that's, that's the way I want to live every single day of my life with my wife. Um, until something bigger than us can take our hands apart. And uh, I love that, man. You said and, and, you've established laws and not rules to be broken. I love that, brother. Yeah. And, um, you know, he, Fred came to me and I was like, you know, here's some scenarios. Here's how you can have this conversation. Here's some things you can do. Here's some things you can discuss. And here's some reality to what you're getting yourself into. Um, and I'm going to pray, I'm, you know, while you, while you go and do whatever you feel you need to do, I'm going to pray for you. And aside from just saying it and sending him into, you know, a situation, I shot him text along. Like, hey, man, hope things are going well. You know, um, I'm, I'm praying for you every night and for your wife. And I hope that things are, are working out and that you're having productive conversations. And, uh, you know, he's been out of the Marine Corps for about a year now, but still married. He's got a daughter. He's an excellent father. Um, he's an amazing husband. He's madly in love with his wife. And, and I hope that some of that is something that maybe I made contagious for him because it was definitely contagious for me. So, yep. um, yeah. And, and there's so many stories like that. I mean, I just, you know, I'm not trying to have a, my name on a building or anything, but man, if, uh, if, if love can be, you know, transplanted, then, that's all I ever want to be responsible for in time. Amen to that, brother. Amen to that. Mike, I got to ask you now, transitioning from your career in the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. why have you decided to run these crazy long distances, man? Um, man, that's, there's so many answers to it. And, uh, so I put this hashtag on just about every running post that I put out. I can't stop. Yeah. That's still my promise. That's still my promise. That, that kid on the yellow footprints, when he imagined all those things, when he had all those questions, none of them had anything to do with ceasing. And when I put on Christ and I became spiritually responsible for what, how people see heaven and how people understand the body of Christ or the church or whatever you want to call it. None of that involves stopping. You know, this is yep. death. The, you know, those bodies in the graveyard down the street, that's not a finish line. And, uh, I think ultra running was, is just a, a way to, I mean, it's a physical way to exercise that, you know, I mean, it's amazing. So, you know, like, you know, this last weekend, I just went, um, you know, I've done four marathons and I've done a couple of half marathons and that's great. And I was like, you know, I did a couple of overnight events with some buddies that I planted a church with out in California. And I said, damn, I think, I think there's more in the tank. And so I went out for the full marathon. And I was like, yeah, let's do that again. Let's recreate it. Okay. Yeah. I'm not the fastest guy out there, but it's not the hardest thing in the world either. I didn't break. Mm-hmm. And so I've heard about ultra running and I was like, I wonder how far I could go. And it was the same concept I had with every job responsibility I've ever gotten with, you know, the, the day of my wedding, um, the, the days that I, each day that I became a father to all four of my kids. I wonder how far we can go. I wonder how hard we can go. I wonder where we can take this. Man, what can this turn into? 
in my friendships, you know, like my buddy Adam, who introduced me to your podcast and, and uh, you know, the moment that you got going on here, you know, he, I helped coach him a little bit and kind of, you know, um, made the running thing contagious to him a little bit. He, in 18 months, he went from never running to back in May, we ran a 50K together. Wow, man. You know, I mean, do something, seek growth and be contagious. Yep. You know, that that's it. Um, Dude, I got to write that down. <laughs> Keep going, Mike. There you go. Yeah. And um, so I do it because, I mean, I don't have to build my own house. I don't have to plow a field to get my groceries. I don't have to, you know, rebuild my car from scratch. I don't have to. There's so many physical things that I don't have to do anymore. But God gave me one body, and I'm not going to turn in a dud when I get to heaven. Um, I will say one person's full name, uh, Sergeant Major Randy Motes. He was, uh, when I was at a reserve unit the first time here in, in Texas, um, he was a man of faith, and he stood up with a lot of courage in his heart. He stood in front of um, the entire unit of Marines, and everybody said, why are you so hard? Why are you, you know, always, you know, so disciplined and, and so physically in shape he's an older guy but he was very trim very just he was a go-getter he was that he was the alpha male right and um he stood up in front of everyone he's like everyone's got questions about my physical abilities and, and what i'm doing here he's like i firmly believe in my belief that one day i'm gonna have to stand before heaven and i feel as if i'm gonna be presented a new body because that's what scripture says and it would be a waste to turn in a body that's still in good condition. <laughs> and I'll tell you, man, I'm still sitting in the audience of that C-130 hangar listening to this man speak, you know, 15 years ago. And I'm still like, Sergeant Major Randy Motes, you know. And uh, you know, even though it wasn't – go ahead. Randy, Randy is what we would have called the bullfrog in the SEAL teams, man. He was, man. He was the bullfrog, man. <laughs> That's all, oh yeah, that's awesome. Well, and he was, a, and he was a reservist. Um, he was a reservist sergeant major, but his full time job, he was a cop out in the Abilene, Texas area. Man, I mean, he was just, he was getting it in every aspect of his life. Mm -hmm. And he was like, "Well, you guys got questions? Well, here's my answer." And you know, I tell you, uh, yep. young young Corporal Cabrero, um, still listening to that speech because, um, yeah, well, yeah, well, he was available. Where where do you think that you'll go with uh, with ultra running, Mike? Do you do you have a certain objective? Do you have a certain number, or are you not sure where where that path is going to lead you? Because I mean, you're um, crushing it right now, man. Well, I mean, obviously, I'm going to get up to 100 miles. So, um, you know, I, I don't know where it's going to take me. I hope it. I wish it would take me out of this neighborhood, off these sidewalks, and, and show me some mountain views like you're getting, dude. So when <laughs> come COVID, out and run with me sometime, dude, man. As soon as this COVID, I got two two of my boys have asthma. And uh, I, I can't, I can't go on a running trip that that could put them in harm's way if I come back with something. So, um, but no, for sure, when, when we get this thing under control, I'm I'm shooting to Rome, uh, you know, Georgia, and, and we're doing it. We're gonna go chew dirt together. Um, or, or if you make it this way, I don't, I don't care how it happens. It's gonna happen. Work, um, but uh, I'll, I'll definitely tell you that um, what I, what I love about this is that you know, first off. Even great athletes in other disciplines, um, in other sports, look at runners like we're crazy. And I, and I love that look. I love that look so much. And I tell you, whenever I tell people that I'm an ultra runner, um, 
I'm an aspiring ultra runner. I, I wouldn't say I'm doing this uh, mid-state mile like the animal that you are. No, brother, you uh, just ran 69 <laughs> miles. You are an ultra runner. You can take the expire. You can take the aspiring part out of there now. <laughs> yeah, but um, but what I love about it is that you know, in today's society, it, it really takes something special um, to get people's attention, and I think it needs to be um, a healthy choice um, because there's too much negativity out there getting the attention of of um people in the world and, and that's the it's no surprise that that's the influence that it's creating um you know amongst the masses and i feel like you know doing something healthy well ultra running is probably not the healthiest thing to do to the body but um the discipline the um the accountability and the uh i mean really those two things but as they add up to going up to that place that most people don't want to go to uh, creates a space for you if you have a positive message or you have a positive influence that you can impact people with it provides you with that stage um, like i said i'm not trying to get my name on on the front of a building or anything but i want to impact people and i feel like it is important to a certain degree to get people's attention and uh, one way to do that is uh, ultra running and some people do it with a bike and cycling some people do it with mountaineering or some people do it with crafting wood in the garage or mm -hmm. or what have you some people do you know paper mache or art or dance or music or whatever um but you know what i love about the fruits of the spirit is that we all have strength there we all have strength somewhere um you know what i love about walking into a room of non-runners is that there is a great education for me to gain in those people because they're doing something else fantastic that i do not understand how to do yep and i'm not the smartest guy in the room i'm the one with all the questions you know i'm the one bugging them for information yep um, and, so, and I think, yeah, I think that ultra running too, man, is a continued opportunity to lead by example. You know, that's a huge thing for me, you know, in the position that I'm in, uh, well, that God's placed me in, you know, uh, of, of having the opportunity to reach a lot of people and to, um, to put out, to put out word, to put out information that, that I, I feel like sometimes people cling to, um, I, I have to. I have to stay on the ground level, man. I have yeah. to continue to lead by example. And, you know, ultra running is one of those things that provides that. Um, it's basically, it provides the opportunity for me to continue to practice what I preach and to lead by example, man. It does yeah. so many things for me too. You know, it's a, you know, what, what an amazing, and you talk about it giving another opportunity uh, to, uh, I guess, whatever you want to call it to to mentor people or to be in a in a environment uh to make that impact on other people you know you think about on race day uh, when you go do your 100 mile or you're going to be surrounded by all these individuals and you know at some point in the race uh you're going to you're going to find a lot of the people around you are going to be broken down to their very core dude everything oh, yeah. is stripped away everything any any walls that we put up between each other as human beings uh yeah. formalities all of that stuff oh, is yeah. stripped oh, away yeah. dude and you know yep. that's boy the the uh the grounds uh are ripe you know in in the midst oh, yeah. of a hundred mile race man one thing i the other the aspects of ultra running that i really love are the fact that you know i mean I, even with marathons like when we can even stick it there you know you go run one marathon I ran three others after that, and none of them were easy. 
just because, you know, I got the first one done. Now I will say, you know, slamming face and face first into the wall is, uh, is, is definitely a great learning experience and, and you never quite do it like you do the first time because you, you do learn how to face that adversity. But um, there's always something different. There's a different time of day or a sprained ankle or an injury or a training thing or a distance that you didn't hit or a pace that you didn't do or a yeah. spot that you didn't um, hydrate or, or whatever, you know, or maybe you get a chafe in a different place or, you know, your toe hits different in your shoe. It doesn't matter. But um, what's great is that it kind of it kind of tells the story of life, you know, with every foot that you try to put in front of you towards your finish line, you know, the entire world is working against you. There's friction, there's adversity, um, there's tired, there's effort, um, and you're not graded against anyone else. It's just, it's a me versus I relationship, and it's a struggle where, you know, you have to reach deep inside. And what I love about it is, is I find some really fascinating, really intelligent people getting into ultra running as I'm looking into the entire sport, you know, around the world. And, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of brain power on, on these race courses, man. Yeah. Um, you know, and that, I don't mean just like a navigation and, you know, calculations, but I mean the fact that these people are digging deep inside themselves to really find what they're made of. And, you know, our comforts of modern society have taken those things away, but I, I love that there's things like ultra running where someone says, this is where you start, this is where you finish and you figure it out. Yeah. That's the and key. man, you get to go to another version of you in that process. And yep. man, I, I just can't get enough of it. My wife, she asked me every time, like at the start of the 69 miles, like, why are you doing this? You know, I'm like, gosh, man, that, babe, I got to go before that answer is going to be done. So, you know, and, uh, you know, but yeah, it's, um, it's just very special and very unique. And, uh, and I'll definitely tell you, it's been cool even since I've gotten out. So, um, I've got at, at this last unit here in Fort Worth, when I retired, um, my Sergeant major at the time had, um, recommended me to this Facebook group called Merca at M U R C A Marine ultra runners club of America. Yep. And, um, they were just started, you know, back in 2017. And, um, I got invited to kind of join in and, and be a part of the community because I just recently got a, I'd gotten my first 50K done. And so they do a screening process, make sure like you legitimately served in the Marine Corps, that you legitimately, you know, completed a, a, a an ultra marathon and, and so on and so forth, right? And they lay down basic rules. You have to have been a Marine. You have to be an ultra runner. You have to be a positive example and um, ambassador to the sport, you know, and to the community of running and, and so on and so forth. But man, since I got plugged in with these folks, I was like, wow, this is my, this is my VFW. This is my Marine Corps league right here. You know, oh, it's all now. And, oh man. And yeah. it's like, and it's crazy. Cause we have some legends in the sport, you know, in, in, in this club. And, and it's just, it's, it's incredible to be around, you know, like the fewer of the few, like, I mean, I can remember so many times, even my peers as Marines, I'm like, dude, why are you running when we're not at a physical fitness test? I'm like, I don't know. I just, it just feels right to go run. Yeah, I just yeah. got to go run. You know, it's treadmills don't do it. You know, cycling doesn't do it. Your little three mile PFT doesn't do it. And, um, you know, so yeah, now that I've been in this group and associated with this club, man, I mean, the COVID things really got me down only because I'm, I'm interacting with these folks that are all over the place. Like, um, so me and five guys that are, you know, 
I think a couple are a little bit older than me from different generations of the Marine Corps, probably a couple of generations just ahead of me. Um, but we just, so the uh, Trail Racing Over Texas organization here called TROT um, just held or is still holding the Trans-Texas Virtual Run. It was just kind of a thing that they, hey, let's keep pe people involved in, in running and yep. give them something to do. So um, you could go from anywhere from solo to a five-man team, and it's basically running the 879 miles, logging in your miles and, you know, sending all your Garmin links, you know, to account for everything from one side of Texas to the other. And Don Willis is, you know, just a guy and his buddy up in, uh, for part of the club, put together, hey, on the website or on the Facebook page, hey, you don't want to get a club together or a, a team together for this. Who wants to do it? So we get on there and I was like, yeah, I'll do it. Made myself available, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, we have six months to do this, like starting July 1st to December 31st to log our miles and get whatever training we're going to get and, you know, do this. And, and the website, like, tracks us. I mean, they do all the cool things to, for this. And Texas is a big state, right? So yeah. you definitely want to, you know, like, you know, give it some effort. Dude, the five of us finished this on day 13. <laughs> we, uh, I mean... You guys should have paced yourself a little better, Mike. Come on, we, man. We did, we, we did, man. We were we were marine ultra runners, and we did it 10 miles each plus a day at a time. Wow. Man. And uh, it was just incredible because, like, you know, we, we have our little, just our little, you know, messenger conversation going on with just me and my teammates. And, dude, it was like I was wearing camouflage again, you know. And yeah. These guys, you yeah. know, we, we got, you know. That's awesome, brother. Oh, man, I tell you, it's just it's just an amazing community to belong to. And, uh, it really if is. Any, man. If there's any Marines out there that are veterans, uh, active duty reserves, officers enlisted, doesn't matter from what generation, if you honorably served and uh, you're interested in, in being a part of an organization that still loves what you love and still serves the community in the way that you do it, you're willing to put your body on the line for more than 26.2 miles. Um, look us up. It, it's an amazing organization inspiring people to belong to and, and and we hear people you know even within that organization talking about inner service relationships like you know chad here and what he's doing with three of seven and, and for the you know seal community and the navy and the armed forces it's it's great to stay connected with like-minded people that are still growing beyond what the uniform provides yeah that's powerful brother that is powerful and i got my eyes on a on a race out there in Texas, I need to check it out. I haven't looked at it in a while, but it's called the Franklins. It's a 200-mile – I guess there's some mountains out there in Texas somewhere. Yeah, the, yeah. West Texas, it gets, it gets mountainous. Yeah. We got everything in Texas, man. <laughs> yeah, man. I, I, looked at, I looked at some photos from the race, and I'm really craving now for kind of that 200-plus mile distance. I don't know why. It's, it's starting to attract me a little more, and I don't know if it's going to be – I don't know what it's going to look like. I, I mean, I, I don't know if it's going to be an FKT attempt on like a long trail, mm -hmm. like the Appalachian Trail or the Penhody Trail or something like yeah. that here on the East Coast, or if it's going to be a race like uh, the Franklins. But that that looks like an amazing race out there, man. It's a 200-miler. I think it's got some substantial climbing and descent. 
Um, and I got to get out and see that part of the country anyways, man. I've never spent any significant time out there. So, right. um, yeah, I got my eyes on that. Take a look at it. I know you, I know you got your sights set on the hundred miler right now. Yeah. Uh, I got a feeling you're going to accomplish that fairly quick. And, well, I probably uh, still need to get back and pace myself and go back and do the 50 and the 50 mile and the hundred K that I passed up. In this race. <laughs> no, don't worry about those, man. You can do that. <laughs> you can do those when you're 70 or 75 yeah, years right? old, man. Yeah. I got a feeling you're going to knock that hundred miler out. Cause if you, if you, if you went 69, you're already in that steady state. Yeah. Uh, you know, the hundred miler, it doesn't hurt any worse. It just requires yeah. a little more patience. That's, that's all right. it is. It's that's yeah, all it yeah. becomes is patience. So, um yeah the franklins is an awesome one and i don't think it's really well known uh at this point but, yeah I don't, I don't think i've heard much it's, it's but, on ultra sign up it's pretty pretty sweet looking event man okay i'll take a look at it and if nothing else man if, if you need a texas crew dude i've got some amazing my buddy adam who got me in touch with you um he's a huge fan of yours and uh and you're you know your three of seven podcast he would man he is amazing he he helped he did two legs of my 69 miler in the afternoon or in the evening. Then his wife came out and did several miles with us. And then he got about three and a half or four hours of sleep and then came back the next morning to, to ensure I was still alive and still keep me That's awesome, man. Well, four trust, five miles, man. trust me, I'm already, I'm already, uh, that's been in the back of my mind uh, here, here at this, uh, last part of our conversation as it's revolving around ultra running is man, I've, yeah, you know, I've been thinking about that race out there in Texas, and now I got all these good buddies out in Texas, and it's like, yeah. man, I might, it, we might have to all come together here soon. That would be an awesome adventure for us to all go on together, dude. Well, oh man, talk about dude. some stories, brother. I would lose my mind. I would lose my mind. I'd lose a lot of weight too, uh, but <laughs> I heard that, brother. Well, hey, man, we're we're coming up on three hours here. Ooh. It uh, didn't seem that long, did it? No, it did not. <laughs> so that's awesome, man. Yeah, man, that was a man. What a powerful conversation, and uh, I I know there's so much more there. I hope you hope you were able to share the things that were on your heart, man, because um, sure. I, I know it definitely impacted me. Uh, I can't wait to put this out to our audience, brother. You just uh, you crushed it, brother, and we're so <laughs> thankful for you and thankful for your willingness to share and uh, and be honest and. Uh, be an open book as and make yourself available. I mean, I think we, I don't know what I'm going to yeah. title this episode. It's either going to be make yourself available or seek growth and be contagious. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be one of those two, because that's just been uh, a really a, a, a foundation of our conversation here today. Uh, I want you to put out real quick to our audience where people can find you and follow you, Mike. Yeah, so it's just Mike Cabrero on uh, Facebook, M-I-K-E-C-A-B-R-E-R-O. Uh, -E um, on Instagram, it's the same, uh, Mike Cabrero 22 And uh, you can also find me uh, on hashtag I can't stop. That's pretty much what I put most of my posts out as. Um, otherwise, that's pretty much it, man. Uh, now you can find me on 3 of 7 Podcast and uh, wherever uh, Chad Wright is running in Texas, I will also be there. So, um <laughs> I'm, I'm also started the groundwork for a book, um, but I don't want to get too heavy into that because it's still a very soft foundation. But uh, uh, I really want to impact the, whoever the next generation is that's going to fill our shoes, and I want to empower them to uh, to really step up and, and make a strong effort to uh, make the people around them better. So um, that's what we're doing, and uh, much love to 
you, Chad, um, don't want to forget your wife, Brooke, and the communication that she provided to, to get me here. Thank you so much for her and her hard work. And uh, your brother that I know is working with you in this effort. And um, just so blessed that you provide this platform, brother, and so thankful for your service. Well, thank you so much, brother. And, and right back at you, thank you for your service, Mike, and uh, not only in the military, but as you continue to serve and, and um, coming on here, like I said, making yourself available, dude. It's just unbelievable uh, the people that God have has, has put into uh, – my path and the people that God has has uh, empowered to stand up and be a part of three or seven project and um, we couldn't do it without men like you brother so we're gonna wrap it up right there Mike this is the three of seven podcast enough said Mike appreciate it brother same to you man have a good one and I look forward to racing with you and running with you man Roger that brother I'll be in touch all right bro have a good night see you Mike you too Yes, sir. Bye.